Hello, welcome to this afternoon at Penn, Sunday afternoon, our open reading. This is um, our living room. I feel I should say that because you should really feel those of you, not only Penn members, but those of you who have come in who know nothing about us but what you may read in the papers now and again, that you should feel very much as though it's Sunday afternoon and you've stopped in for a visit and we are all visiting together. We mean it to be very informal and very open, um, a very democratic afternoon. Uh, Palm Sunday, beginning of holidays, um, our spring, our spring event. The game plan goes like this. 10 minutes for everyone. There's a little clock here. 10 minutes for the folks who are going to introduce each hour too. Um, and Gay Talese is the gentleman we're very proud to have to start off with his own reading. The, uh, and Grace Paley and Galway Canal and Ms. Cortez will all be limited to the 10 minutes that everybody else is limited to. I don't feel I want to be running, uh, or either the people who are leading the hour or that my little emceeing here, we don't want to have to do a little gong at the end of 10 minutes, so everybody will observe it, I'm sure. Gay Talese, our first um, writer, member of Penn, member of the Penn board, is the author of seven books. The Kingdom and the Power, Fame and Obscurity, The Bridge, The Overreachers, the neighbor's Thy Neighbor's Wife, Honor Thy Father, New York, A Serendipitor's Journey. He was born in 1932 in Ocean City, New Jersey, and is a frequent contributor to Esquire. He was a staff member of the New York Times from 1955 to 1965. He is married to the publisher of Houghton Mifflin, Nan Talese. They have two daughters. He is a longtime member of Penn American Center and lives in New York. I give you Gay Talese. Thank you. I am reading from a new book. It is autobiographical. The, uh, the time is the middle of World War II. At that time, I'm 11 years old. And it's centered on my relationship with my father, who was trained in Italy as a tailor, immigrated to the United States in 1920. In 1943, his brothers were fighting with Mussolini's army in the southern part of Italy, in the same section where he was born. My father was born in 1903. My father's brothers being fascists, and my father having been the only immigrant in this family who come to America, was at the same time during the World War II a member of the Rotary Club in a small Republican town 
on the southern shore of New Jersey, a patriotic American living the life almost as an emotional, emotional double agent. Patriotic overtly, secretly, privately, and with some embarrassment, worried about his brothers, and worried about his own image, I think, in this time when Mussolini's army was not yet ready to quit. What I'm about to read is a scene from the back of a store that my father owned, a store in which I, after school, would work. And I'm describing some of the equipment in this dry cleaning plant that he owned, and I'm describing him as a rather disciplined and disciplinarian, as a disciplinarian, as a very harsh master over those who were in his employ, including myself. And I'm describing these old, these antiquated, these malfunctioning pressing machines, which he bought in the 1930s. And they were three enormous pressing machines commandeered by rather uh, enfeebled black men who were 4F. And the scene that I'm about to read, as I said, I'm the age of 11, and the year is 1943. These machines were jaw-like monstrosities with elongated padded white lips that voraciously compressed clothes in boisterous heads of steam and then with a sudden malfunctioning of one of their many recondite and irreplaceable parts, they would choke, sizzle, and stall to a halt, breaking down most often on those afternoons when the back room tables were stacked highest with wrinkled suits and overcoats that had been promised for delivery to customers before nightfall. These antiquated machines that my father had purchased during the late 1920s were not only confounding to fix, but were enfeebling to use. The workers were forced to stretch and strain as they pulled down on the levers of the long iron padded flatbeds that pressed the clothes against the lower flatbeds. And since the imperfectly repaired boilers of the machines leaked excessive amounts of steam, the men at work quickly became drowsy and debilitated, like weightlifters in a sauna. Even on the coldest days of winter, when all the overhead fans were vibrating at top speed, the men would sometimes wilt and faint from prostration. And no doubt, they sometimes wondered if the military life for which they had been found physically unfit could have been as, could have been as taxing as their labors behind these enervating hulks of metal. There was one man, however, who was more than a match for the machines. He was a tall, sinewy black man with an agile bony face and lively eyes and a shiny mass of wiry black bronze-tinted peroxided hair that he combed dramatically over his head back to the gaudy shoulders of the tropical shirts he always wore. He was called Jet, and he had come up from the South as a saxophone player, as a saxophone player with a jazz band before the war, but he had been forced to quit after developing a tuberculous lung an illness that he claimed he was, he was now slowly curing through the inhalation of steam and the snorting of white powder, powder that he carried in a tiny bag in his shirt pocket. Although Jet was afflicted as well with severe, severely in, uh, infected feet, his toes were gnarled with carbuncles and corns that popped under his socks through the leather straps of his sandals he even wore in winter. He was by far the most vigorous and productive employee in the store pressing clothes faster and better than anyone else. And when his machine blew a gasket or otherwise fizzled out, 
He played with its, val with its valves and keys like a, like a musical instrument, and soon he and his steaming machine were back in harmonious rhythm. Bedazzled by Jet and totally dependent upon him, my father never complained about Jet's loud radio that was always tuned to jazz, and he pretended not to notice when Jet appeared a half hour late or left an hour too early because Jet's speed could always be compensated, could always compensate for any temporary slowdown in the flow of the load of the pressing. But on those days when Jet did not show up, even by 9 a.m., as he was doing with increased frequency now, my father worried, put on his hat and coat, left the shop through the back door, and began his cautious stroll in the direction of the black ghetto, which was a dilapidated row of white shanties two blocks beyond the store, built along an unused stretch of railroad tracks within view of the bay. If it was a Saturday, the one day I worked full time at the store, my father would insist that I accompany him, reasoning perhaps that the presence of a young boy would make his surveillance in a black area seem less official, less foreboding and penological. Since my father was never certain of Jet's exact address, the latter constantly shifting from one rental space to another, he would begin arbitrarily at one of the places where Jet was known to have dwelled in the past, hoping that some tenant would provide a lead that would help my father locate his true impressor. But we often arrived so early in the neighborhood on Saturdays that we woke people up and irritated them so much that they told us nothing. One morning, as my father stood on the loose boards of a rotting porch, tapping on the slats of a torn screen door and calling to Jet by name, an elderly woman wearing a bathrobe leaned out of the upstairs window and hurled a metal pot down at my father. Although it missed him, it caused such a clatter as it bounced along the sidewalk that the dogs barked in the house next door and children began to cry and a large black man from across the street abruptly opened his front door and glared. Hey, he said after a pause, what the hell you want? I'm looking for Jet, my father replied. Jet who, the man asked challengingly. Surprised, confused, my father did not, did not respond. Momentarily, he held his breath. It, was apparently, it, it had apparently occurred to him for the first time that he did not know Jet's last name. The man across the street, his heavy arms folded, stood waiting, and I feared that he might leave his porch and come toward us. But my father remained silent and kept his eyes downward, and the man merely sneered and said, we don't know no jet around here, and re-entering his house, he slammed the door behind him. My father turned toward me, forcing a smile, and then taking my hand, he led me down the icy steps. I assumed that we were on our way home, but after he had walked a half block in silence, he said, Let's try one more place, that house on the corner. I protested, but he pulled me toward a two-story clabbered house that, like all the other peeling buildings on the block, had brown stains streaking down the white walls beneath the drain pipes and rusty dented automobiles parked in the driveways and muddy yards littered with broken bottles and punctured tires and assorted household rubbish soundly stuck in the frosty, weed-strewn earth. Let's go home, I again pleaded. But my father moved toward the corner house where he soon was knocking on the door and with somewhat less force than before calling out to Jet. This time, however, there was no response whatsoever. No one came to the door. There was no barking of dogs. It was as if we were totally in, in, in a totally abandoned house. My persistent father knocked louder, wrapping his gloved knuckles against the white door patched with plywood, causing a hollow echo that rose in the harsh morning air, but from the house, continuing silence. Okay, he said finally, let's go. 
Relieved, I followed him down the path and toward the street in the direction of the store. I had seen enough of Jet's world, but a sense of sadness lingered within me as we walked, for I knew that after we had gotten back to the store on this Saturday, as on all the other Saturdays when Jet was adrift, I would see my father in the back room remove his jacket and tie and strip to his undershirt and then begin, on this busiest day of the week, to labor as long as he could in the steam of Jet's machine. And not only my father, but I as well would be confined until Jet's unpredictable return to the hot and hazy atmosphere where no conversation could be heard above the pounding and hissing of the machines and where time always passed slowly as my father sharpened the front creases of other men's pants while his own tailored trousers became sodden and baggy-kneed and where I, sitting near him as he expressively wished, listlessly affixed hundreds of cardboard guards onto wire hangers before hooking them along the pipes within reach of the perspiring men. My father, I unavoidably noticed, lagged behind even the portly, gray-haired, semi-retired presser whose leisurely pace at other times my father had repeatedly criticized. And while this man was at least 20 years my father's senior, he possessed an enduring stamina that, was, that my father clearly lacked. After a half hour in the steam, my father was a lamentable figure. His eyeglass glasses were fogged over. His neck seemed to have shrunk within a soaked, sogging noose of the knotted white handkerchief. And after he had extended his slender arms above his head to grip the levers of the machine, he would heave as he pulled downward, straining under the flat iron's weight, and his face suddenly bore the agonized expression of his favorite saint. I sometimes wondered, many years later, if there was not a part of him that almost reveled in these moments, these humbling efforts that perhaps put him in touch spiritually with those flagellants that he had once described watching intently as a boy in southern Italy, a bedraggled but tenacious multitude crawling uphill on bleeding knees, or, those, although, or, or those ascetic village elders, among them his grandfather, Domenico, who vied for the honor of hoisting on their shoulders the weighty statue of the monk who extolled the virtues of mortification. But now, in this period of World War II, with citizens everywhere receptive to sacrificing, and with my father's, father's widowed mother existing vulnerably in the Italian hills and his brothers in the fascist trenches, it was possible that he was experiencing in his discomfort a kindred comfort, a kindred comfort with his primal concerns. Or at the very least, he was imposing upon me, his only son, a lasting awareness of how hard his life could be and how little right I had, by comparison, to complain about the minimal obligations required of me in the store. Still, I did complain and sulk in silence and in the back room, when I thought my father was not watching, I would sometimes try to slip away, but he always caught me and scolded me, and he would then turn and raise his hands to the white matted machine, and I sometimes prayed with uncharacteristic fervor, hoping and believing that within a miraculous few seconds the door would open, and I would hear the shuffling sounds of jet-sandaled feet that would soon replace my father's wingtip shoes on the iron pedals, and thus I would gain at least temporary relief from a stifling and wistful Saturday. Thank you. Our next, uh, our next reader is Daniela Giuseffi. I think this is a lovely idea. Maybe we could make it an annual event uh, here at Penn. I came to serve on the table from four to five, and no one wanted to take this first slot, but I'm very happy uh, to uh, 
read to you now and to be introduced by Gay Talese. I had an Italian father too, though he was quite agnostic and um, so quite a bit different than yours. This poem I will read just happens to be after Vittoria Colonna, who was a 15th century Italian poet. As when some long-silenced singer hears her aria. As shells fill with sand and sea, tumbled by the ocean, bringing nourishment to pipers, and crabs crawl riding foam to hurry back to salty home, leaving a tune in the inner chamber of the ear where songs rejoice deep in feathered nests, where warm eggs crack hunger, or a child slithers sucking from the womb, cut from umbilicus to see, hear, touch, smell the glistening slime and rhyme of earth. My tongue is loosed beyond a private caroling. Fierce, fierce rays of light live sun on my face as on leaves photosynthesizing food for all the young. Then my pen dances urged by mysterious love as if it had no part in what it says as Mother Earth herself sings her praises through me whose eyes are green sea, red sky, wildflowers, children who laugh so well when loved beyond the pain of men's rivalries, pride, tribal wars, sacrificial blood, and threatened suicides. So that was after Vittoria Colonna. And I thought I'd read it since it was also a poem about war and it had the word pen in it. <laughs> this is called The Olive Branch, also on that same theme. The olive branch falls from the wet mouth of the old dove and sinks in a river of fire rushing toward the delta where the oceans will catch flame and evaporate with lust and children's lungs will be sucked of oxygen. But the president doesn't notice. His polished desk blinds him with its veneer. And on the street, the crowds rush to glimpse the television screen, alight with the fire of electricity, like the body politic, as it broadcasts the baseball scores. It is the final playoff of the world series. And we are here, all of us, with flesh eyeballs alight, with the wings of the dove as they flutter on beyond the red and blue sunset, which continues to outdo itself year after year, since the mastodons crept from the sea of blood, bearing mammalian breasts, full of warm milk for all the many colored faces of earth. 
Children, as they suck life from leaves of grass, withering now in the threat of fire or ice. Eternal winter, which comes to each one by one, but need not be passed in one blast of heat to all the young buds of being, wafting perfumes as they burn from bright autumn rust. Beauty so enough that it kills the caring heart with its own ceasing. I'd like to read a translation of a great Romanian poet, Nina Cassian, which I did with the author, Nina Cassian, who is now living in exile here in the United States. And it's from an anthology of poems by women on war. And this is called On a Japanese Beach. Maybe some of you have heard Nina Cassian here at Penn. So this is a translation of her poem on a Japanese beach. Hiroshima, Memento. Blind children are brought to the beach. They bask in sunlight and wade in waters. Sunbeams like a huge woman hug them. Gentle waves kiss their eyes. Wind combs their hair. Sand puts slippers on their feet. But the colors, only the colors, the colors can do nothing for them but shimmer from surface to surface, from sand to sea, from hands to eyelids. And the children are orphaned by the colors. And the colors are orphaned by the children. Translation of Nina Cassian, which I did with the author, a Romanian poet. This is a translation which I did with Ineldo Garcia by Minerva Salado, a contemporary Cuban woman poet. Minerva Salado. It's called Reportage from Vietnam especially for International Women's Day. So it was written a while ago during a different undeclared war than the one that's being fought right now. Reportage from Vietnam, especially for International Women's Day. A woman is a flame. She is 21 years old, and her flesh is on fire. Her womb trembles. Her erect breasts are consumed by fire. Her hips contort. The muscles of her thighs boil. Andai's flesh is ignited by flames, but she does not burn with passion. It is napalm. Um, do I have time for just three more, what, three more minutes? How, I think, one more minute. Okay, I was going to read a translation of Vesna Perun from Yugoslavia called The War, but instead I'll just finish with this little one minute poem of my own called, it's from Eggs in the Lake, 
a book of poems, and it's called The Peach Through the Eye of the Needle. The peach is a belly dancer's fruit. It, too, possesses a navel for seeing the world through the skin, has rounded buttocks good to place against the hand, the way earth reminds flesh of its being. Through the eye of the needle, death is a country where people wonder and worry what it's like to live. The sullen wish to live and live soon, to be done with death, and the happy want to stay dead forever, wondering, will it hurt to live? And is there death after death? Thank you. One, one thing we have to put into operation here is um, the system by which each reader uh, tells you just the tiniest bit, just a couple of titles, uh, poems that they have published, books they've published, and what they're up to now, because I think that's interesting. Would you please quickly do that, Daniela, for oh, us? Oh, surely. I'm a poet and a novelist and a playwright. I read one poem from a book, Eggs in the Lake, from Boa Editions. I've published a novel from Doubleday and Dell called The Great American Belly Dance. And in, I'm in many other books, and I have a treatise on women and the dance called Earth Dancing. And also, I have just completed editing in an international anthology of women's writing on the subject of war, from which I was reading a few poems today. Thank you. Our, our next uh, reader is uh, Fran Minushkin. I write children's picture books almost exclusively, and I'm going to be reading from one called Baby Come Out. Since you can't see the pictures, I should let you know that the baby in this story is still inside her mother's belly. Mrs. Tracy was growing a baby. She fed the baby very carefully. For breakfast, she gave the baby milk, soft boiled eggs, and good raisin toast. Do you like your food, she asked. And from deep inside her, baby would say, um. After breakfast, Mrs. Tracy would go into a sunny room and paint. She would put red, blue, and every other color on paper and paint them into lovely shapes. Then she would tell Baby about them. Do you like your pictures, she asked. And Baby would say, um. The days went by pleasantly until one day when Mrs. Tracy took Baby for a walk in the woods. Baby, there are so many little yellow flowers. When you are born, you will see them for yourself. I don't want to be born, said Baby. Oh, yes, you must be born, said Mrs. Tracy. I am staying right here, insisted Baby. Mrs. Tracy started to cry. What shall I do, she wondered. All she could do was go home. 
When her children came home from school, she told them about baby. We know how to make baby come out, they said. Laura put her head against her mother's stomach. Baby, she asked, can you hear me? Yes, said baby. Come out, Laura yelled, as loud as she could. What, cried baby, I won't, you scared me. Craig put his head against his mother's stomach. Baby, he asked, can you hear me? Yes, said baby. Come out and I'll give you a nickel, he yelled. What, cried baby. I don't know what a nickel is and I won't come out. Mrs. Tracy's mother came over. She put her head against her daughter's stomach. Baby, can you hear me, she asked. I'm your grandmother. Yes, said baby. If you come out, I'll bake you a delicious banana cake. Wah, cried baby. I like my food here and I won't come out. Mrs. Tracy's father came over. He put his head against his daughter's stomach. Baby, can you hear me, he asked. I'm your grandfather. Yes, said baby. If you come out, I'll take you for a fast ride in my car. Wah, cried baby. I like riding in mama and I won't come out. Then baby went to sleep. What will we do, they all asked, but nobody had an answer. Then daddy came home. He gave his wife a kiss, he gave Laura a kiss, and he gave Craig a kiss. Then he gave grandmother and grandfather kisses too. Mmm, they all said. Hey, what is going on, whispered baby. I'm kissing my family, daddy said, and here's one for you. Then he put his head against his wife's stomach and kissed. I don't feel anything, said baby. No, not yet, said daddy, but you will when you come out. Here I come, yelled baby. <laughs> wait, wait, yelled everyone. Dr. Wells rushed over and helped bring baby to her family. Welcome, he said. Mmm, thought baby, where's my kiss? <laughs> Mama kissed her, daddy kissed her, Laura and Craig kissed her, grandmother and grandfather kissed her. Mmm, smiled baby, I am staying right here. Then she fell asleep in her mother's arms. And that's the story of Mr. and Mrs. Tracy, Laura and Craig, grandmother and grandfather, and baby, who learned to walk and talk and paint yellow flowers, but who always liked kissing best. Our next reader is Jaime Manrique. Um, um, I, I, was, I was born in um, uh, Colombia and I have um, published um, several books in Spanish and one novel in English in translation. And today I'm going to read uh, from a novel, um, it's a work in progress called uh, The Interpreter. And this is, uh, I'm writing this in English. So um, I have to tell you a little bit about the novel. Uh, the novel takes place in New York City, but the part I'm reading today is a flashback in which the hero, uh, Santiago, is 10 years old and he's going to, um, uh, when the story, uh, this part opens, he's, he's uh, going to get his sister at school. She's been punished for not doing the homework. 
and he goes with his best friend whose name is Stick Luster, and he's a Swede who just moved to Colombia and doesn't speak English very much. <clears throat> From the interpreter. I stood facing the three-story pseudo-Tudor house. I spat on the palm of my hand and, ran, and then ran it through my hair to smooth it. I straightened the color of my sweater and retied my shoelaces. I walked up the gravel path that wandered through a garden of roses and irises until it reached the front steps. I rang the bell. At least once a week, I had to get Will Brajan after school. Doña Hilda herself, the school principal, opened the door. Good afternoon, Santiago, she said, holding out her hand to me. Come in. Your sister is in the library. Go get her and meet me in my office. I want to have a serious talk with you. In the library, a large cold room with leather-bound books stacked from the floor to the ceiling behind glass cases, there was a long mahogany table surrounded by gothic-looking chairs with red cushions. Will Brajan was sitting at the table writing on her notebook. She was uniform in the school's dark blue blazer, a blue wool skirt, a white blouse with the frilly collar, and black stockings and shoes. Her ponytail was tied with a red velvet ribbon. She did not notice me. She was probably writing a thousand times, I promised to do my homework, happily absorbed in a task that was easy and required little concentration. I was sure that contrary to what her teachers thought, Will Brajan loved her punishment. Knock, knock, I called, standing at the door. She turned around and smiled, showing the white gap in her front teeth. She stuck the tip of her tongue through it and wiggled it. Her big, black, watery eyes glistened. Hi, Sam, she said. I haven't finished it yet. I have to write it 468 more times. She bit her pencil. I explained she didn't have to do it anymore, that Doña Hilda had summoned her to her office. Looking disappointed, she gathered her books and walked out of the library. We walked in silence down the dimly lit and cavernous halls. Upstairs, we heard the boarders playing, and from the kitchen traveled the smells of boiled string beans and lima beans. Will Brajan, why didn't you do your homework? I don't like coming here all the time, I said. Ignoring my remark, she started humming, smoking, I await the man I love, a couple by Sarita Montiel that was popular at that time. Doña Hilda was sitting behind her desk. She invited us to sit down. Will Brajan, have you finished your line, she asked. No, ma'am, Sam said I didn't have to. Let me see your notebook. Will Brajan produced the notebook and handed it to the principal. With great distaste, Doña Hilda flipped through the pages. At least your calligraphy is improving, she commented, returning it. Thinking she had been complimented, Will Brajan said, thank you, ma'am, and opened the no notebook to, ad to admire her handwriting. Doña Hilda frowned. Now, Santiago, she began clasping her hands under her double chin as if she were kneeling on a pew at church. I've tried in vain to contact your mother, but she's never, never at home and doesn't return my calls either. So once more, I have to complain to you about your sister. I don't know what to do about this girl. She is, without doubt, the most problematic student in her class. I looked at Wilbrajan, who, oblivious to the principal's peroration, was retying the ribbon and that held her ponytail in place. I tuned out, too. It was the same yakety-yak week after week. It was, it was hard not to yawn, Santiago, she was saying. And you seem like such a nice, responsible young man. I wish your sister would follow your example. 
I bet you always do your homework and never give your teachers any problems. Will Brajan giggled derisively. Angrily, Doña Hilda said, Will Brajan stop that this minute? Why can't you be like your brother? Will Brajan's eyes fill with tear? I reached over and patted her arm. Please, sister, don't cry. Opening her eyes wide, she scratched my hand with her sharp fingernails. She's a monster, the principal shouted. Then, composing herself, she handed me Will Brajan's report card. Santiago, I want you to give this report card to your mother. I suspect your sister has been forging her signature. As you can see, she flunked everything again. That's a lie, Will Brajan cried. I got a five in singing class. And a lot of good that's going to do you, Will Brajan. Do you plan to be a singer when you grow up? Then why do you teach it if it doesn't count? You impertinent child, I'm warning you. You're too much of a headache. You should be grateful we took you in. If you don't change soon, young lady, you'll have to go to another school. And good luck to you on that one. I knew that she referred to the fact that as illegitimate children, we could not attend any of the Catholic schools. I myself had attended Colegio Hebreo, the Jewish school, and had learned how to read and write in Hebrew before I knew how to do it in Spanish. That's all for today, Doña Hilda said, dismissing us with her hand. You can go now, and please, Santiago, make sure that she does her homework tonight. I will, ma'am, I promise. Outside the principal's office, I said, Will Brajan, you better do your homework tonight. I'm not going through this again tomorrow. Shut up, she said. Mind your own business. She ran down the hall, and I followed her. As soon as Will Brajan spotted Stick, her mood improved, and she started to fuss with her ponytail. She favored him among my friends, perhaps because he was foreign and blonde, perhaps because he called her Will instead of her full name, which she hated. We started walking back home. Will Brajan asked, are we going to play in the park? You're not playing with us, I said. You have to go home now to, you, to do your homework. I won't, she shouted and stopped walking. We're going to play boys' games, I said. Cowboys and Indians, you don't like that game. It's not fair, she shrieked and smashed her satchel on the ground. Her books and pencils scattered on the pavement, and the wind swept off loose sheets down the street. Pick up those books, I ordered her. I want, I want, I want, she screamed, beginning to have a tantrum. I raised my hand as if to slap her, but she was quicker than I and scratched my cheek. A stick separated us. Please, no good brother and sister, fight, he said. I want to play, not to fight. Let me see the scratch. He grabbed me by the chin. It's nothing, Santiago. No bleeding, no scars, he pronounced. Then he kneeled on the ground and started picking up my sister's textbooks and pencils. She helped him, smiling at him all the time. When they finished, Will Brajan sat on the street curb and started arranging neatly the contents of the school satchel. A stick sat next to her. I hated her guts. I hated her for coming between my best friend and me. A stick pulled out a chocolate bar, which he split three ways. We chewed in silence for a while. Giving me a gloating look, Will Brajan asked, what are we going to play now? A stick shrugged, hide and seek, I said, knowing that she hated that game. To my surprise, she agreed to play. We started ascending a long, steep street that led to the mountains above Bogota, crossed Carrera Septima, and entered the grounds of Javeriana University. Instead of walking across campus, we hiked up a mossy and paved trail that led to the shanty towns above the city. It was dusk. The sky above Bogota was charcoal color, and the pallid sun had sunk in the horizon, buried behind the clouds. Beneath us, the city lights were beginning to go on, and in the distance, the tall downtown buildings lit their skinny silhouettes against the ashen background of the mountains in the south. 
The mountain peaks were swathed in fog and the ground was moist and cold. We walked until we reached a promontory at the bottom of which rose the back of the building of the School of Medicine. It looked deserted. The government had ordered a curfew a year ago and since that time all evening classes had been canceled. We made sure that there were no guards around and then raced on the sand in Pebbly Hill. One of the windows of the ground floor was ajar. I went in first and stick helped Wilbra Jan. Inside, it was dark, cold, damp, and the room reeked of the strong chemicals that were used for embalming. It was the morgue, a long white room with high ceilings. Four rows of slabs crossed the room, and the walls were fitted with refrigerators stuffed with fresh corpses and loose organs kept in plastic bags. Will Brajan whispered, I hate this game. They want, then why don't you go home, I said. Nobody invited you. We sat on the cold tiles with our backs against the wall. Okay, let's play now, Stick said. Who will go first? I will go first, I said. Will Brajan offer to count? You count too fast, I said. Let Stick count. He cannot count in Spanish. You are the one who doesn't know the numbers, I said. Will Brajan and Stick turned to face the wall, covering their eyes with their hands. Stick began to count to a hundred. I tiptoed down the aisles. Most of the corpses were covered with yellowing stained sheets. Usually, I'd, I climbed onto an empty slab and covered myself with a sheet, or I lay next to a corpse and hide. There weren't too many hiding places. I heard the count of 68. I better hurry. I decided to try something new. I opened one of the huge, huge refrigerators in the back of the room and stepped in. The door shut behind me. I realized I could not, it could not be opened from the inside. A small light bulb lit the interior of the ice box, revealing two corpses hanging from hooks, one male, the other female. In the dim light, their skins looked greenish. The man's body was old, skinny, his flesh corrugated. The woman's was young. Her face was smashed and covered with frozen blood, and her red teeth showed in a horrifying grin. Her eyelids were open, and she had no eyeballs. Her skin was taut, translucent, and her fingers stretched out as, she, as if she were ready to jump on me. Seized with terror, I launched against the door and started banging on it and kicking it. I slipped on the icy floor, and as I fell backwards, I grabbed the woman by a leg, knocking her off the hook. The corpse landed on me. Her breasts were on my face. I put my hands on them to push her away from me. Her breasts were, cold, were hard, cold, sticky, like ice cubes. I realized I was running out of air, that I was beginning to freeze. I started to scream. White smoke came out of my mouth. The echo of my scream ricocheted off the walls of the refrigerator. Oh God, I promised to be good, I said. I promised to let my mother baptize me and I'll have my first communion and I'll go to mass every Sunday. I promised to obey my mother. I felt dizzy, slipping on into unconsciousness. I couldn't get the woman's breasts off my face. When I touched her, it felt as if I were being glued to her corpse. Now I saw that her throat had been slit and the insides were brownish red like guava paste and the edges blackish, rotten. Her face green inches away from me. I tried to remember what I knew of the Lord's Prayer. It was useless. I didn't know it. Suddenly I heard the tremendous pop. The door of the refrigerator opened and I heard voices calling my name and hands pulling me by my sneakers. And I knew that the devil Yoselina had threatened me so often with was finally here to drag me to hell. Thank you.
storm ends just behind here, all take warning so you don't do a pratfall. Uh, our next reader is Isabella Leitner. I was born in Hungary. I am a survivor of Auschwitz. I have written two books on my experience. I have recently done a recording of my first book, and I have written material for Elizabeth Swedo's Nightclub Cantata and other things. The anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in, in the next few days, it's only appropriate that I should read something. The sun made a desperate effort to shine on the last day of May in 1944. The sun is warm in May. It heals, but even the heavens were helpless on that day. A force so evil ruled heaven and earth that it altered the natural order of the universe and the heart of my mother was floating in the smoke-filled sky of Auschwitz. I have tried to rub the smoke out of my vision for 40 years. Somebody's bride. Pocho was just 13. She was my sister. She had the wisdom of a child of war. She was full of fear yet tiptoed with tenderness, laughter, and love in a world of madmen. She was a weeping willow, a song of sorrow, a poem of infinite beauty. Why does Hitler hate me? Why does he love hate? Mama, I am only 13. I have songs yet to learn, games yet to play. Give me time to live. Give me time to die. Mama, how can I do all the living in just an inch of time? On a wretched piece of earth, an alien land of terror and chaos, on another planet called Auschwitz, Mengele points at Pocho. Bring around the roses, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes. Did heaven look on and would not take their part? Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 3. I went home. I did not. After 34 years, I journeyed home four and a half thousand miles to the capital of the country of my birth. There were only 200 miles more to travel to the town where I was born, drank mother's milk, 
went to school, played with friends, laughed, cried, grew up. 200 more on flyable, unswimmable, unwalkable, unbearable miles. I did not go. I was paralyzed by my emotions. They would not stretch one more inch. They stopped dead on Dohány utca in Budapest, in the center of a lovely city on Friday night in May in the Dohány temple. The temple is giant. Before Hitler on Friday nights, it was filled with thousands of Jews praying to a god that did not remember the location in 1944-45. Now the worshipers would have filled no more than a small hall, and that only because the American tourists were there. Otherwise, a small room would have been ample to accommodate the few worshipers whom God spared and forsook in the Holocaust. The rabbi's voice boomed in the enormous temple. The Americans wept, the Budapestians to the recto stooped, but did not weep. I heard my soul rattle beneath the outer layer of my body. I wanted to shriek, but instead I heard myself whisper to the lady sitting next to me, were you here when it all happened? Are you from Budapest? How did you survive? You see, they took me to Auschwitz and I don't really know what happened here while I was there. Was not Budapest safer than other parts of the country? Tell me, tell me, I want to know. I was here, I had special papers, I survived. But my sister, my sister, she was 40 years old. She was beautiful. They marched her tied to 400 other Jews from her building. They marched them naked in the middle of the night, in the winter, down beautiful Andrashut, and they shot them into the Danube. And they did that the next day and the next and the next, the Red Danube. Dr. Mengele, we are on our way to America, and we are going to forget every brutal German word you forced us to learn. We are going to learn a new language. We are going to ask for bread and milk in Shakespeare's tongue, we will learn how to live speaking English and forget how people die speaking German. The ship detaches itself from land and plunges into the waves of the Black Sea. Goodbye, Dr. Mengele, you murderer. You robbed us of our family. Seven of us were supposed to go to America. Only three of us are leaving. I search the sky to see if I can conjure up my mother and my little sister, Potio. I look in desperate sorrow, but can discern no human form. The smoke has vanished. There is not a trace, 
no grave, nothing, absolutely nothing. My mother lived for just a while, Pocho for less than 14 years. In a way, they didn't really die. They simply became smoke. How does one bury smoke? How does one place headstones in the sky? How does one bring flowers to the clouds? Mother, Pocho, I'm trying to say goodbye to you. I am trying to say goodbye. final speaker in this segment is uh, Erica Duncan. Okay. I realize it's always so hard to follow the power of real experience with fiction. Uh, nonetheless, I I'm a fiction writer. Um, my last novel was published by Shokin a year ago. My first novel was published in 1977. And Shokin also published my um, collection of portraits of women writers, or not only women, living writers, women and men. And um, I'll be reading from my new novel, which is about a blind child in a traveling theater company. And it's my attempt, really, to ask these questions about what is it like to exist in a world in which we have no sense of a definite future, in which, you, you know, everything is in turmoil and, you know, there's no security of um, knowledge of sexual arrangements, anything else, and we sort of have to make it from scratch. Anyway, it was the evening of the day after Easter Sunday in a year that would mark many murders across the nation and in Vietnam where the fighting was. The sun was trying to erase its presence from the sky, peculiarly and unconvincingly, to make way for the pale sickle moon that had already risen hours earlier and now stood almost parallel to it, waiting its turn. Around the edges of the corner parking lot, the first trees to gather their green in a moment of fleeting heat, now gone seemed to hang on to their brilliant colors almost fearfully, as if knowing that sunset and returning coldness might take them away. A few frail dogwoods blossomed and aspen trees trembled. It was said that Christ was hung upon an aspen tree and the entire species remembered and would shake till the ending of time. Two rickety pale blue vans pulled into the lot and stopped by a makeshift stage that had been rapidly set up. The door of the hindmost van slid open and a black-haired, black-eyed child jumped out. She was barefoot and wore a long yellow skirt from India with mirrors sewed into it, tied low under her belly button, which was bare. She wore a garland of white daisies in her hair and hugged to her chest the papier-mâché effigy of a dead Biafran baby. For a moment, she seemed to talk to it softly, as if she were its little mother. 
Then impetuously, she flung it down onto the pile of velvet capes and costume finery on which, when she was younger, she had slept countless nights while her parents' street plays were going on. Imperceptibly, a crowd had begun to gather at the corners of the parking lot. Their theater troupe was playing in a neighborhood where the people were primarily poor and black. Slowly, small boys with dark faces formed a solemn line under the shaking aspen trees. And then their mothers and their fathers came, their baby sisters waiting for the adults of the troupe to show themselves. The barefoot girl approached the small boy who was trying to hide behind his mother's skirt. She gave the boy a flower from her hair. She didn't say a word to him. She didn't know what to say. Martin Luther King, whom she heard crying out, I have a dream, had just been shot. Now riots darkened the land. Some felt they were a good beginning of the revolution. Others were afraid. Elena was afraid. During the last great march in Memphis, the great black leader had patted her upon the head, but then a 12-year-old was shot. Elena had seen his dead body and the crowd of people loving him. Her mother had explained to her what made their anger rise. The boy and his mother stepped backward a bit. The boy let the flower drop onto the soft clay dirt of this Atlanta parking lot. And a sadness came over Elena, a sorrow older than herself for the fact that she was born white and could never undo what her people had done, a wordless sorrow for the fact that she was not of the oppressed classes she had been taught to love from birth, for she was lonely for the love of those she loved. And already at the age of 11, she was starting to lose the childlike simplicity that had made strangers trust her even when she was the enemy. She'd wanted to offer condolences to the little boy. She'd wanted to offer to him apologies for all that had ever gone wrong, but she could not. Now a man and a woman came out of the van. The woman had flashing black eyes like the child and was dressed in all manners of purples and reds and many flying scarves and shawls, which vied with the sunset as the sky slowly gave way to its own darkening. The man had a face that Kazakovitz could have drawn. His intense staring eyes set in deep, hungry hollows, and the skin over his chin pulled taut. <coughs> that child looked at me with such fear, Elena said, taking her father's hand. I wish I could have said something to reassure him. She said, hiding her face in the soft reassuringness of his bare chest. Don't worry, little goose, he said, smiling down at her, the smile that made the stranger start to open up. His body was so beautiful to her. Ever since Elena, the child could remember, her father had taken male lovers. Her father had gone without clothes. Many times at the coming of night, while her father was learning his lines, when Elena was singing herself into sleep, singing out of tune union ditties, from a time long ago in the 30s and stroking herself, her mother, Michaela, would come and would lie down beside her and talk about a time when people believed that there was only one way to love. When people believed that there were inexorable forces that ordered the way life ought to be. But all of that was over now, and humankind was either on the brink of hope or suicide. Only the human spirit could decide how strong it had to be to stay the self-destructive tide. That was why the work of their theater was so important, her mother would say. She was sorry if Elena's life was confusing and hard at times, sorry that they never stayed in one place long enough to settle down and yet she saw no other way. Nightly, whenever Elena got scared and began to worry about the world and about the inevitability of her own death, Michaela would come to her bed to tell her moving stories or would sit with her in the van as they moved from town to town, having no country and no city they could call their home. 
Never Elena often thought, no matter how hard she, she tried, would she find a way to be as big or as beautiful as her parents. Even now, as Elena watched Michaela make ready to be in the play, holding her father's hand, she blushed with an embarrassed admiration she could neither fathom nor prevent. Her father noticed the blush and tried to reassure her, his touch causing shivers to run up and down her body, shivers of desire and a fear of she knew not what. Elena had been spared very little. At 11, she had a knowledge of sexual and political matters greater than that of most adults. She was, in addition, an expert in sadness and terror and pain. There was little their plays did not deal with, and Elena was a character in every play that they put on. Now in an old house behind the parking lot, a boarding house that once had been a mansion, lonely-looking old people appeared on porches and in upper-story windows. A policeman twirling his stick appeared apprehensively following a woman who was carrying a large and listless child. The child was almost bigger than the woman and was very pale. Her head hung limply to the side, her wild eyes wandering. The haziness of the descending night exaggerated the whiteness of her wide, flat cheeks, the yellow of her uncombed hair. It soon became obvious that the child was blind. Stiffly, the mother sat down on a stone that served her for a seat, holding the child in a pieta-like position, her orange hair coming about her like a curtain shielding her own eyes, so fearful and so sadly strange as they surveyed the sighted, active child. Then from the front van, other players came, men and women from many different countries who had joined the troupe during their travels. They were arrayed in prison stripes and carried clanking chains. They made a rhythm with the beating of their breath. Soon, Michaela would take the puppet of the dead, the offering baby from Elena's arms, and the child in the audience would be suddenly forgotten as its mother would be caught up in Michaela's litany. As long as war remains, as long as we eat flesh of fellow living things, we are all murderers. Each day a baby dies, cry with me, cry. And then the women in the company would cry, like mountain women in the Balkans, wild and human cries, calls to bridge distances of time and age to make the lonely, jagged peaks close in upon the valleys and come echoing over and through them. They would cry like mourners for the dead world first and then like newborn babies. Then Michaela would set fire to the puppet, and as it blazed, Elena, who would be hidden behind her, would come out and dance around her, a wild and happy dervish dance, the mirrors of Michaela's skirt she borrowed, flashing all the colors of the rainbow as she whirled. The spirit of the children that they kill will come alive again, Michaela would cry out, stop the murderers. And then she would remove the skull-like mask she wore to show them how beautiful she was. I'd first like to very much thank Gay Talese for being here and starting off our first hour. He is one of America's finest journalists and did that remarkable thing of hopping. He hops um, genres very easily and most successfully, fine novelist and uh, the autobiography we've gotten the first look into this autobiography and I'm very happy 
that he could do this for us here this afternoon. Thank you, Gay. The lady I was sitting next to asked me, well, <laughs> rightly, well, who are you? Well, the name was up there. I'm Maureen Howard, and I'm a member of Penn, and I write fiction and teach and sometimes write criticism. And today, I really feel that I'm a scout leader. I sort of figured out I'm not, I hope to hell I'm not Joan Rivers or Johnny Carson or uh, whoever runs marathons, but I feel more like a, a scout a scout leader. We next have Grace Paley. We're very happy that she's here indeed. Um, Grace Paley, I'm sure many of you know exactly who she is. She was born in New York. We know that she writes so beautifully about New York. Born in the Bronx. She, uh, it's certainly not the culmination of her career, but it sure is nice that she is currently uh, the official New York State writer. Um, she has written uh, three books of stories known well to her readers and admirers, and one book of poems, Leaning Forward. Uh, she's going to read to us today, and she's a very active, as is Gay Talese, a very active member of Penn, and uh, has been one of the forces that has helped uh, the organization to establish a strong, um, vocal, and important women's committee, which is now part of our organization. <coughs> I'm going to be the introducer from now on, too. I'm just going to read. Uh, I'm going to read something called um, A Midrash on Happiness. A Midrash is a commentary. So this is our commentary on happiness, or commentaries. What she meant by happiness, she said to her friend Ruth, was the following. She meant having or having had or continuing to have everything. By everything, she meant first the children, then a dear person to live with, preferably a man, not necessarily. By live with, she meant for a long time, but not necessarily. Along with and not in preferential order, she required three or four best women friends to whom she could tell every personal fact and then discuss on the widest, deepest, and most hopeless level the economy, the constant, unbeatable, cruel war economy the slavery of the American worker to the idea of that economy, the complicity of male people in the whole structure, the dumbness of men, including her preferred man, on this subject. By dumbness, she meant everything dumbness has always meant, silence and stupidity. By silence, she meant refusal to speak. By stupidity, she meant refusal to hear. For happiness, she required women to walk with, to walk in the city, arm in arm, with a woman friend, as her mother had, with aunts and cousins so many years ago, was just plain essential. Oh, those long walks and intimate talks, better than standing alone on the most admirable mountain or in the handsomest forest or hay-blown field, all of which were certainly splendid occupations for the wind-starved soul. More important even, though maybe less sweet because of age, than the old walks with boys she'd walked with as a girl, that nice bunch of worried left-wing boys who flew 
always slightly handicapped by that idealistic wing, into a dream of paid-up mortgages with a small room for opinion and solitude in the corner of home. Do you remember those fellows, Ruthie? Remember? I'm married to one. <laughs> well, not exactly. So it's a union co-op. But she had faith continued, democratically tried walking in the beloved city with a man. But the effort had failed since from about the age 27 or 8, he had felt an obligation if a young woman passed to turn abstractedly away in the middle of the most personal conversation or even to say confidentially, wasn't she something? Or clasping his plaid shirt at the heart's level, oh my God. The purpose of this perhaps to work a nice quiet appreciation into thunderous heartbeat as he had been taught on pain of sexual death. For happiness, she also required work to do in this world and bread on the table. By work to do, she included the important work of raising children righteously up. By righteously, she meant that along with being useful and speaking truth to the community, they must do no harm. By harm, she meant not only personal injury to the friend, the lover, the co-worker, the parent, the city, the nation, but also the stranger. She meant particularly the stranger in all her or his difference, who, because we were strangers in Egypt, de deserves special goodness for life, or at least until the end of strangeness. <laughs> By bread on the table, she meant no metaphor, but truly bread, as her father had ended every single meal with a hunk of bread. By hunk, she was describing one of the attributes of good bread. <coughs> Suddenly, she felt she had left out a couple of things. Love, yes, she said, for she was talking, talking all this time to patient Ruthie, and they were walking for some reason in a neighborhood where she didn't know the children, the pizza places, or the vegetable markets. It was early evening, and she could see lovers walking along Riverside Park with their arms around one another, turning away from the sun, which now sets among the new apartment houses of New Jersey, to kiss. Oh, I forgot, she said, now that I notice, Ruthie, I think I would die without love. By love, she probably meant she would die without being in love. By in love, she meant the acuteness of the heart at the sudden sight of a particular person, or the way over a couple of years of interested friendship, one is suddenly stunned by the lungs longing for more and more breath in the presence of that friend, or nearly drowned to the knees by the salty spring that seems to beat for years on our vaginal shores. Not to omit all sorts of imaginings which assure great spiritual energy for months and when luck follows truth years. Oh, sure, love. I think so, too, sometimes, said Ruth, willing to hear Faith out, since she had been watching the kissers, too. But I'm really not so sure. Nowadays, it seems like pride. I mean, overweening pride when you look at the children and think we don't have time to do much. By time, Ruth meant both her personal time and the planet's time. When I read the papers and hear all this boom, boom, bellicosity, the guys out daring each other, I see we have to change it all, the world, without killing it, absolutely. Without killing it, that'll be the trick the kids will have to figure out. Until that begins, I don't understand happiness, what you mean by it. Then Faith was ashamed to have wanted so much and so little all at the same time, to be so easily and personally satisfied in this terrible place, when everywhere vast public suffering rose in reeling waves from the round earth's nation states, hung in the satellite-watched air and settled in no time at all into TV sets and newsrooms. It was all there. Look up, and the news of halfway around the planet is falling on us all. So for all these conscientious and technical reasons, Faith was ashamed. It was clear that happiness could not be worthwhile with so much conversation and so little revolutionary change. Of course, Faith said, I know all that, Ruthie. I really do. 
but sometimes, walking with a friend, I forget the world. We have, I have, I mean, I'm responsible for <laughs> five speakers now. And the first is Jean Marzola, who is here. <laughs> Thank you. I'm writing a novel in poetic form called Martin, and today I'll read the prologue and some of chapter one. Prologue. 20 years ago, you died in such an awful way that every year I sit in the kitchen and make myself make this phone call. Because if I don't, I picture your mother in church on the anniversary of your death with everyone staring at her, and she's wondering, where are the flowers, the message in the bulletin? Where's the proof that my son had friends? You lie in your coffin with your hands on your chest the same way you slept. You didn't bend and curve. You didn't wrinkle the sheets. You looked dead when you slept, but when you were found, you were sprawled, as in Pompeii, those people caught in lava, as in photo exhibit A. In the brown ring left by my coffee cup, the Boston Globe says, girdle sales snap back. Women are expected to spend two and a half million dollars on girdles for the second year in a row. Does everything always snap back, never a straight line of progress? I flex my soft buttocks on the hard kitchen stool. Well, they won't get a penny from me. I wish I could see your face. I can find your smile but it hangs in the air like the Cheshire cat. Your eyes, your best feature, I can't see your eyes anymore, but I can still see their eyes, the DA and the black woman at the trial, his eyes, so come on, come on, her eyes, so flat. While you were getting out of the car, you saw something coming down from the top of the building? Yes, I did. Were you able to see what hit the ground? It was a man. While you were looking, did you hear anything? Before. Before you looked? Yes. From the general direction of the object? Yes. Could you tell us what it was that you heard? A scream. You thinking about Martin? My son Willie is 19, a freshman at Vassar. It's Christmas break, and his girlfriend Sarah is visiting for three days, Tweedledee and Tweedledum in maroon and gray Vassar jackets. She sleeps in the guest bedroom, I hope. I think I hope. I mean, I don't want them to obey me completely. <laughs> I ask him, how did you know? Willie points to the margin of the newspaper, which says, Martin, flowers, do it now, call. Martin was my godfather, and he was murdered in the 60s, Willie tells Sarah. He sounds proud. Is he proud of Martin? His cheeks are flushed with pink. Murdered, says Sarah pushed off a roof in Boston, says Willie. And yes, he does sound proud. 
Was he a hippie, asked Sarah? No, because we're studying the 60s. He definitely was not a hippie. Willie shrugs. Mom, can I borrow the car? We thought we'd go to the mall, get a bite to eat, hit a movie, okay? That okay? You okay, Mom? I fish in my bag with my hands because I can't see through tears. It's stupid. My keys are on a small brass chain. I can never find them. Pens, chapstick, Kleenex. Christ, okay, here they are. Yes, I'm all right, go. Don't worry, have fun, go. Snapped back, there you are, in a J-press suit, a red and blue striped tie, teaching your freshmen. Bless Sarah, it was her question that did it. Was he a hippie? Now I can see your eyes. 20 years, 20 times, I should be used to this. This is Jessica Stone from Boston, Massachusetts. I'd like to order memorial flowers for the eight. If possible, not poinsettia. I was thinking maybe lilies, cyclamen, silver artemisia. And the same message, that's right, in loving memory of Martin Dell from Jesse, Gregory, and Willie. Part one, Jesse, chapter one. In 1965, I'm a senior at the University of Connecticut. SAE wants to go on a shoot. The call comes at supper, and one hour later, we pile into Pontiacs and head for Irv's, a bar with a dance floor on a country road somewhere in eastern Connecticut. We drink so much beer that we have to go to the bathroom where the toilet paper runs out and those panty girdles having to pull them up and down because we drink so much beer that we have to go to the bathroom where the toilet paper runs out always. And no one asks, is this fun? And no one even thinks of going up to Irv and saying, either you buy more toilet paper or we're going to take our business elsewhere. <laughs> and Theta House is not a house, just a brick dorm like all the other dorms, dining room on the left, lounge on the right, and a house mother straight ahead. On the bulletin board, a new notice, Harvard's MAT program. I could do it in English. When I announce at supper that I might apply, my sisters look at me skeptically. Two months later, when I get in, they say, now? You're leaving in January? Don't you want to stay for the senior spring shoots? My mother and I pack the car, and on my seat is a canned ham with a red ribbon around it. A ham? I stopped at the country store and bought it for you as a present. I settle the ham on my lap as we drive away. It's hard to know what to say. I have just hugged my friends goodbye for the last time. And now we're driving past the humanities building where I took all my English courses and the library. I was coming back from the library my sophomore year when a kid ran by shouting, President Kennedy was shot. It was a bright November day. The leaves, already past their color, were brown and dead on the sidewalk. Most of us went home that weekend to watch TV with our parents, Jackie and Lyndon on the plane, Jack Ruby at the jail, the riderless horse on Pennsylvania Avenue, the children. My mother speaks about the brochure for the Graduate Center. Did you know that there are two lounges with kitchenettes in the basement? You never know when you might want to fix a meal for someone. I'm going to Harvard to study English, not cooking. During the Depression, having a ham in the cupboard made me feel hopeful. It's a nice ham, Mom. Thanks. The stadium, the fields, the trees. I wish the sun were out. 
Do you know how to fix it? I'm sure when the time comes, I'll find a way. Bake it according to instructions, but take it out 30 minutes before it's done and pour a can of sliced peaches mixed with mustard over it. Then finish the bacon, the baking. Don't you want to write that down? I'll remember. How do you know? You might be too busy keeping up. There are very intellectual people in Cambridge, wealthy ones too. We turn onto Route 44 and leave campus entirely, three and a half years over. I'll be fine, Mom. How's your golf? People are not what they seem. For example, some of the men you meet might be interested in you but unable to show it. They might not be able to handle the practicalities of life, like asking you out for a date and remembering to get cash in the bank before it closes on Saturday so they can take you out to dinner. What are you talking about? It's just that if you have a ham on hand, you can make a meal for a guy in a snap. I grab a pencil and write on an envelope, ham, 30 minutes, peaches, mustard. The look of triumph that passes over my mother's face illuminates the interior of the car. <laughs> David Lifson. This is a short story which I have adapted into a play and is being published with five other original plays of mine this, later this year. Uh, I call it the shtetl comes to the South Bronx. When the leaves have turned bright colors, when the wind out of the west becomes crisp in the mornings, when dusk falls earlier, and when the evenings grow chill, I recall, I was a boy of eight. My brother and I slept late because of the double reason. The night before, we had huddled in front of the wooden stove in the kitchen while my father and mother recalled their youth in Dahame, back in Russia as we toasted cornbread until midnight, and because it was the Jewish holiday of Shimkus Torah. We kids loved it, and, well, I'm going to skip part of this. Um, alas, we were not allowed to enjoy an extra hour or two of sleep on this holiday. My mother charged in from the store to awaken us. You're still sleeping? Get up already. The only response was our groan, and we did not stir. No, I have to go to the store so Papa can come to dress. You have to go to shul. Get up. We remained oblivious to her screams under the covers of coats that had been improvised as blankets pulled over our heads. To my tr troubles, there's no end. Quick into the toilet. I'll get yet a goiter from you. She snatched our covers off us, and with sleep-sodden eyes, we reluctantly crawled out of bed. My brother Martin, with whom I slept in a rollaway bed in the kitchen, groped his way to the toilet before me. After all, he was older by two years. <clears throat> we had slept in our old-fashioned underwear, a sort of drop-back affair. Who had ever heard of pajamas in those days? My mother's voice was relentless. Hurry up, I'll fix you cocoa and butter you, and butter you some rolls. Be quick, Papa will be here right away. Then we finished our when we finished our ablutions and finished our breakfast of buttered rolls and cocoa, we never knew of orange juice in those days, but well, we did occasionally have farina and marmalita. 
that's a cornmeal mush, so delicious, with real heavy sweet cream, and so on. Uh, I'm obliged to cut part of this. Soon my father came in. Always on a holiday, he was a revelation. No longer the workhorse in grimy overalls. I loved to look at him. He was the most handsome man I ever saw. He was dressed in a dark blue suit with white piping or in, on its vest. He was freshly shaved, his hair parted in the center with the sides curled up. His mustache was combed in the style of the Tsar. Martin and I had quickly rushed through our breakfast and prepared, and prepared uh, for the holiday outings. outing. My father handed the velvetalis pouch to Martin and the sitter to me. We hurried to the 3rd Avenue L en route to Yosh's. I liked the L, which I rode with my parents on our monthly trip to my grandmother on Rutgers Street in the Lower East Side. I liked it because I looked out the windows in, out the window into the windows of the flats in the tenements along the way. If I was lucky, I'd catch a quick view of a girl or woman in a state of undress. Wow! Before Martin could preempt my view, the train had rolled by the exciting, transient, erotic vision. Throughout my life, I've never encountered a haven and an oasis, a place that so made me feel like I belonged as I did at Yoshi's. Like my father, he was one of the fraternity of Lancelite, all the same, all from the same shtetl in Belarusia. He had a hardware store and paint shop in the Melrose section of the Lower Bronx, an, an Italian enclave known as the Hub. The store was in a tenement Yasha owned. His business had flourished, enabling him to move his family upstairs to a five-room flat while he knocked down the walls of the three rooms of their former home behind the store. The one remaining room, still with a stove and sink, now, now served as the family kitchen, dining room, and hangout for the daily visits of the Lancelite. They came from all over. For them, this was the home in this new, this alien land, no different in the feeling it enfolded in the feeling it enfolded them from the shtetl in the old country. They came from all outposts of the metropolitan area, from Williamsburg and Brownsville in Brooklyn, from the cold water toilets in the hall tenements of the Lower East Side, from the affluent West Side in Harlem, even from Patterson in New Jersey. They came especially to observe the holidays and once again to share the camaraderie at Yosh's. They were all members of the same variety. A handful, led by Yasha and my father, had organized it. <coughs> Excuse me. Organized it, and it was more than the usual and numerous burial societies, for it held them together in this new land among strangers. When a lanceman needed money for rent, when he had no job and no food in the house, when one of the family was deathly sick and he was in frightened despair, when he needed advice about a new business venture, when he was baffled and frustrated by the intense tempo and demands of this new way of life and simply needed a few moments of Brudishoft encouragement or refuge from the unrelenting struggle to survive, it was to Yasha's he came. When a lanceman had trouble with his landlord, Yasha went to court and pleaded for him. When a desperate father called in the middle of the night, desperate where to turn, <clears throat> when his consumptive son was hemorrhage, hemorrhaging his life away, Yasha would go, sit the night through with him, give, give a comfort out of his own bloodstream. 
When my father Martin and I arrived, we found a few of the landslide already there with their talisman donned and praying. The room was simple, but evidence of the holiday was plentiful. Of course, one of the closets was covered with a curtain of deep maroon velvet topped by a valence of the same cloth on which was embroidered two golden lions of Judah. This was the ark for the holy scrolls of the Torah. The section of the large room was separated from the rest by a translucent curtain. In the center of the main part of the room was a large round oak table on which the heavy resident siddha prayer book was open. The table, usually covered with an evidently much-used oilcloth, was now covered with a fresh white tablecloth. On the drain board alongside the sink are four long-necked whiskey bottles on which are flanked by an array of many shot glasses. Hard by it is a table on which are arranged platters of pickled herring, schmaltz herring, marinated fish in aspic, dill pickles, pickled tomatoes, honey cake, sponge cake, and pyramids of black bread guarded by a jug of sacramental wine. There they were, but not all of them. The others will come, and their women, folk, and children will arrive later. The old man with the albino-like white beard was Moshe, the oldest. He prayed and shuffled at the window that faced east. At the table, reading in a dr droning mumble, was Belville, flanked by, the, by Abe. Then there was Nathan, who was, a, who was sneaking a shot of schnapps. Standing apart was Charlie, the rich one. One was a butcher, another a carpenter, that one a house painter, and so on. Others will soon arrive, but we, we didn't see Yasha. Sholem Aleichem greeted my father. The others responded with an Aleichem Sholem. My father looked around, so where's Yasha? Belville sadly volunteered. He's at the hospital with Chaim. My father gasped. Oy vey, what happened? So talk already. So give me a chance. Last night, Chaim's young, young, youngest son, you know, Sammy, was playing on the fire escape. Gaval, don't tell me. Yes, he fell off down four flights. We're waiting to hear. Nathan sadly shook his head. America gone it. In our shtetl, whoever heard of fire escapes? My father turned to Charlie. You'll pray maybe for your nephew? Charlie tried to bury his head deeper into the sitter. My father persisted. Don't you think it's time you behaved like a mensch? God will forgive you. Forgive you if you don't pray on this Shimchistoda. Go to the hospital. Make up with your brother. He needs you now. Charlie spread his arms helplessly as though he was at a loss what to do. He quickly walked to the table, poured himself a shot of schnapps, and downed it in a gulp. My father sadly shook his head. So that's your answer. Busily arranging his talus across his shoulders, and like the others, he continued to wear his fedora hat rather than a yarmulke. He approached the table and, and started to read from the siddha. The others intermittently and in turn read their portion. Martin and I quietly approached Yasha. Martin spoke to him in a hushed voice. Reb Moshe, do you have a schmeck topic? Moshe, smilingly indu smiling indulgently as he interrupted his prayer, wiggled a reproving finger at us and conspiratorially cautioned silence. He finished the passage in his prayer, then he drew us boys to a corner where he, he would not be observed. He fetched, fetched out of the tail pocket of his Prince Albert coat a small snuff box. Martin and I took a pinch under Moshe's gui guidance and inserted the topic in our nostrils. Mersha, pleased with himself, innocently hurried back to his spot by the window and continued to pray. pray. We stood quietly in anticipation, soon each of us in turn, and then in unison, gleefully started to sneeze. 
Meanwhile, two more Lancelite came in after an exchange of greetings. One asked for Yoship. He was told, whereupon he protested that they were missing the tenth man for a minion. Velvel argued, where is it written that these two boys can't be figured in a minion? Don't give them ideas before their time, my father protested. They, they've not even been bar mitzvah yet. My brother Martin asserted himself, why must I wait? I'm a man. Patiently, my father assured him, you certainly are. Come, Martin, I have something for you and Willie. He approached one. into the store. Two more landslide came in and donned their talisman. Velvel happily greeted them. Uh-huh, now we can have a minion. There's Moshe and me and Charlie. Moshe quickly interrupted him. It's forbidden to count the living. All these rules, no wonder the Rebbe's spent a lifetime studying. Anyway, we have a minion. The others busied themselves, but Nathan stopped them. I think it's only right we should have a blessing with a little schnapps. This met an enthusiastic response as the others crowded around the table and imbibed to the accompaniment of a prayer. The Lancelot took turns in reading a portion. Then after the libations, my father drew aside the curtain of the sanctuary and with the appropriate prayer, opened the maroon drapes, then the doors of the ark, and brought forth the scrolls of the holy Torah. He rolled it open on, on the table and chanted the Hakophis. Then with the others behind him, he led them the men in a joyful singing march around the table. Some danced as they sang. Martin and, and I joined in. Each of the Lancelite then read a portion from the scrolls. Each made a frequent, frequent visit to the drain board for his shot of the Yitzhak Goldberg schnapps. My father was ready for his moment at the Torah. Like the others, perhaps with an ecstasy heightened by the schnapps, his rich lyric tenor rang of his faith. He was no longer the lowly workhorse in the early grimy overall, I'll try to brush through. His rich lyric tennis rang, sang of his faith. He was no longer the lowly workhorse in the early grimy overalls in the store. He was the leader, the voice of a man freed from the smells of the ghetto, clutching at a tenuous rescue from the tormenting fears for the survival of his ch children, for the redemption of the woebegone, at removal from the chaos, from confusion and salvation from all evil. Like a disembodied spirit, he sang of joy and unfailing hope, of spiritual peace, of pious exaltation, of cosmic order, rooted in eternal truths from on high. In communion with his God, he was the voice of his sons and of his beloved ones to his beloved God. There's more, of course, but it ends and I'll just read the end. When western winds whip, whip up wandering wanton clouds, I recall those long ago holidays and the landslide at Yash's, where the Hasidim revived the old shtetl as they sang, danced, prayed, and wept. Now Yasha and the other houses, Yash's and the other houses have been bulldozed to make way for a superhighway. I'm sorry I had to cut most of it. Glad to introduce Armin Schwerner.
This is a brief self-contained excerpt from a work in progress. She holds herself ready for the blows of the unpremeditated. So interesting, but it all takes place in between. No holes are barred. When the states go well, the sentience smells like old velvet in odd folds. Undulant, she thinks. And she hasn't rushed once, the seeing middle finger barely moving in its tight, gooey canoe entrance. Her left thumb and index finger, surgically, in the gentle fixedness, clamping the outer labia in some visualized accordance with a smoky, thick, heavy idea, a half-unwilled stasis benignly motionless necessity, dual. The striated sides of the boat arcing surround the waves and rise through her intestines, establishing through the realms of her awarenesses of her islanded organs, both the pain of losing the discreteness of heart pancreas, liver, isle of languor hands, and the confounding pleasure. She is two now, symmetries of dual onenesses, and in the deepest gratefulness owes her life to these parallel barriers against the threats of totality. Because her eyes hurt, she listens to them. If they leave her, when? It isn't someone else. Islands. It's no longer a matter of ungovernable flakes, untidying everything, unbalancing. She falls through a stringency of despair. When everything leaves, there's a death something left. Behind all, a ram of steel governing. And back of that, landed organs, an end to the messy flux. No more piecework, anger hands, continuous suturing, staring and wrapped in a needle world of wrapped fits of healing, in healing. Fair exchange in this Loss of early morning, variegated mystery, wild spectrum, disorder in the many. Such a sweetness in the undulant flock of recollections in her fingers, branching. The cloying perfection in what she's doing absorbs her increasingly. She falls inside the viscous, lemony circle her arms make with her thighs and outer lips remaining inheld with a respect voice, as if in obeisance to the sun, but there is no sun. Her right hand begins to cramp, and she's on the cusp of rushing, but ready now 
not later, not another time in an excitement or surrounding an excitement as if either building a building of primary colors or with the pain of loving attentiveness, unmistakably, distinctively surrounding the shape blackly, heavily bordering it, at which she feels a red of searing pain. It's crazy, like to catch a net in a web, or rather, as if to drive flickerings over the hill into a one by means of a gross surround. And her body's too small for such battles. Most would be. Better to follow the swelling of the object in modulated colors and happen into several outlines. Too much speed. The ram speaking in her respect voice, barely cognizable. There's a lot of wet dickering now. Small flashes of nearly ungovernable flakes threatening red abandons, wastrels into a many, and a hoping like an attaching iron searing she doesn't even want, a hoping against the grain to avoid a one slammed into over a hill. Too much anger work. Threats of hands into pieces transformed by the now meat-eating sheep of fingers, recollecting in a violence, barely in a petal avoidance, grazing the labia. And again, either wraith of devotion and absence, or regina of chairs and glasses and colonies of patience, and laundry healings and quotidian celebrants of small, progressively invasive fingertip recollections, cicatrice traces of endless, tiniest sliver cuts, nicks of private history, unrevealing of which body flourished in which diffusedly memorable pain, deveining shrimp, scrupulous othering attentivenesses to engorged penile coralli. Her entire body almost an idea of progression, a raving sleep or a tumid alertness. She moves minutely, heavily, as in a delayed unsatisfactoriness of a pelvic tilt undone by the absorption of the mattress. She vows never again to be a mouth of spent words, breasts of exfoliating allure, Neither A nor B, but two for all in a translation gone into and through willlessly, moved by a circumambient desire, but not a narrow rams, or revels over, moved to say, pain, pain, and overcome to overcome. Story. In a forward movement, the idea of going, handhold, the safe of a temporary two between a horror and a horror. In a heart illness, there's no body fire. The liver tries ruggedly, separated rugged heart tries, rugged trials establish islands, stress, more stress on the other organs, rugged and purely separating in pure hell in disconnections, lady likelihood. The kidneys try, and not only. The others, beehive, 
skein, web, hall sane, leaf veins of worlding. The nature of information relaxes into a loss. No mail. Oh, fuck the dead. Her finger, ram, penis, not silvery angelfish, smooth scales and glinty in a boxed wetness safely enclosed. Imagination of home, fortress, defense. Well, all right. Why not accept this weakness of considering a home, home? Fields, island of safety, island of comfort. Her entire body, the ram's voice, uncognizable from an outside. Think of that. Unterritorial, her hand as a man's, vastly unsettling. Grand âge, nous voici, heat, order, submission, memory fingers of cum in her mouth. To leave all this now, even given the pleasures of will, is to go away from the knowledge of the sweetness of everyone's interchangeable servitudes. The ochre bedsheets are bunched under her coccyx. She wishes she could wish to sleep. Thank you. Elsa Gilbert. poet and a playwright. Um, I've been working as a playwright off-off Broadway since about 1967. I've had about over 30 productions and stage readings. Uh, as a poet, um, I've been published in various literary magazines and uh, in 1985, Bard Press published a book called Survivors and Other New York Poems. And I've given readings all around the city and on cable TV. I thought I would read some poems today, uh, and they deal with the subject of loss in different ways, and they're old and new. The first one is called Bob, Not Bobbing Along. I saw you at the event and ran, my mind swerving from your reality, my body making a sharp right turn to avoid your literal presence, your sudden girth bespeaking failure in the literary pastures you had plowed so well, when you were leaner, lighter as an Englishman who knew every word of the language, and wit dripped out of your smiling mouth now downturned, the corners containing spittle you didn't bother to wipe off, didn't even notice as you hung your head among the literati, swirling under the yellow and white striped tent, basking in the glow of awards and hardy fellowship, 
though some secretly hated their peers who had reached the top of Mount Everest with them. But each smiled and drank the heady wine of grapes and glory. As you walked among them, stony-faced and swollen of belly, swilling red wine and defeat that left sediment in the glass, tainting your tongue with bitterness, I knew your talent, I knew your humor, I knew your hope. And you were a reminder when I saw you of all our young hopes for life, for writing, for art realized, for touching someone as far away as the Himalayas, at least in spirit, as we climbed that mountain and reached the pure, clean air of communication conveying the feel of the whitest bone revealed in our cloistered bodies, holding our structure together. I saw you at the event and turned to a laughing old boy, once red-haired and deaf, writing his poems to the silence of his singing soul, someone I knew in the past on a quarry, searching for another quarry that would give him hearing. He heard me then and now, as we talked, graying head to graying head, as I sorrowed silently for your obvious demise and all our collective losses under a larger sky blue tent spattered with stars. This poem is called On Olson's Silences. Intellectuals sweep the floor, thinking of heaven and hell, the way Dante described both states, or a remote religious philosopher's view of limbo, as they create a souffle that neither rises nor falls, and as they take out the trash, some of it trailing down the stairs, falling out of the bag as if alive and protesting oblivion, they silently recite terza rima or the four quartets or conjure up five easy pieces, dreaming of Jack Nicholson and fantasizing about wild sexual events in lighter moments, anything to stave off despair at anti-intellectual activities that invade most women's waking hours unless they literally live in an ivory tower or penthouse Intellectuals sweep life under the rug with the dirt and sometimes become that speck of dirt when they finally sit down at the typewriter or desk planning to actually write something and nothing materializes. All that sweeping and silence has done its dirty work. This poem is about my mother, who has since died a few years ago, but at the time she was still alive, at the time that I wrote this. And it's called Missing Mother. Across the room, a small woman garbed in canary yellow shirt that contrasts with faded brown hair piled atop her head in an old-fashioned way reminds me of my mother, who is not dead, and not dead to me, but far away. She lives across the border in a neighboring state, but not feeling neighborly, though she has many companions in withered arms, 
faltering steps. Her brain has wandered across the border far away too, meandering among the daisies and weeds, those widowed too, sprung from her own imagination. The mind plants occasionally watered by hot tears falling from one faded blue blind eye and one seeing eye, I think of as the frail dog trained to keep my mother company as she takes her unfocused endless walks up and down the corridors of no power there in her home, away from home. I go to visit her and know that nursing homes are not for nursing mothers, but women whose milkless breasts are no longer noticed, not even by old men there, now neutered by the slash of old age. But once my mother was the Belle of Bensonhurst, lovely and innocent as Mary Pickford, age 16, and movie magnets begged my mother to leave Brooklyn so her smile and her long golden hair would appear on the silent screen to enchant the world as far away as war-ravaged France, 1918. It remained fantasy. No one but her intimates saw that smile. Grandma rejected an actress' wicked wastrel life for her daughter, who remained dutifully depressed and silent until she met her own Valentino, an ex-actor, a sweet chic. After the altar, ego tenuous, she played the role of wife and mother to mixed reviews. Intermittently drowning, she plunged into Greenwich Village life, bohemian respectability, and madly traveled, studied, wrote, taught, painted, danced, sang, and pounded the piano most impressively to beat out the devastating demons who always dwelled right there at the edge of her art. Sometimes they caught her, and my mother, choosing weeds over daisies, would wander away to weep or shout in the country or her parents' house or once for a long stay in a hospital far away. And we, left at home, would weep too for her absence, sometimes present, even when she was there. But there were long moments when my mother was vivid, even brilliant, alive with music and words, love of nature and science, her impressionistic world passed on to me on a canvas filled with great globs of colorful paint, a kaleidoscopic scene from which I could choose bits and pieces to create a patchwork quilt to protect me from the cold, narrow, mundane life my mother scorned and knew so many others lived. If the message I received was sometimes sharp, it distorted or even lying, Still, it was very personal, and I learned to spy the bitter beauty housed in her meddlesome, bloody eye. For she was my muse, my missing mother, whom I miss. That short-sighted, far-sighted, half-blind, perceptive poet who was now wandering the floors of a nursing home, her face either flushed with anger or her mouth holding a secret smile that reaches another old woman who delights in the sudden attention. My mother, never still, never stops walking down those long halls to escape her latest demon, 
death. And as she walks, she calls continuously to her own missing mother, Mama, Mama, Mama. And the last poem I'm going to read is a new one just written this week. On hearing Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, which I heard on the radio recently. Benjamin Britten's bones are buried in the land of Brighton, Bournemouth, and Battersea, that green and pleasant place where he once took tea in the company of green and pleasant lads in early youth before the war that lay in store to batter the destinies of all the young men, green and pleasant, who buttered their crumpets and drank their tea while chatting pleasantly about the queen bee and her drones in their midst. The handsome dandy in his linen jacket and straw boater, surrounded by a retinue of lesser young English gents, perhaps murmuring in muted tones about musical matters, the efficacy of grace notes or trills in the music of Delius or Purcell or even John Byrd, tinkling the teacups in delicate hands that did not know the plow or the hammer or the shovel in the coal shaft, but knew the 88 keys to the kingdom. There was the majesty of rolling hills and dipping dales and jaunty roadsters on the roads, barely missing the roosters who ran across in a great flurry of flapping wings, nature imitating art, as the boys sped through, waving their arms in the Rolls Royce or the roadster with the top pulled down, smiling broadly, tossing their elegant English locks in the wind. Driving to their immediate destiny, lemon tea or a warm whiskey, at somebody's country manor, made extraordinarily pretty by purple peonies or box hedges set against the Georgian brick. They were all bricks, brought up in bath and bathed by nannies who loved them dearly despite their delicate breeding, thin as fine china, boys with Wedgwood sensibilities who knew their place in the world and sang hymns in the church choir on Sundays made brilliant by the thin English sun. And when the war came, God saved the king, but not the green and pleasant lads in early youth who fell on shores across the channel. Music, poetry, and breeding all immaterial in their material death. A messenger from the other place, a ghostly handmaiden draped in peonies, kissed the farm lad, miner, carpenter, and Britain's carefree, fragile, highborn boys with equal abandon, sealing all their lips with a mixture of lethal tea brewed from the liver lethe and the dirt of Mother Earth embracing her children drawing them back into the eternal womb, perhaps a green and pleasant place to bury bones. The nannies wept even more than the parents who had sent them to die so England could live evermore. Thank you.
Helen, Helen Duberstein. Four Corners, in memory of Paul Goodman. The booth stood in a field of swaying grass. There were no wires, either to or from the booth at first. Then there were wires and poles and all the connections that were necessary. Geraldine used the booth to call from. She walked over the dirt road and then off it and struck across the field to the booth. Hello, hello. There was no direct interference from the operator at first, nor any obstacle to direct discourse. Are you dying? I'm dead. Don't die. What do you mean by such nonsense? I mean it. Just that. Don't die. It wouldn't be fair. It won't do. Won't do. Wouldn't be fair. What nonsense you always talk. Well, I thought I would say it. The bull stood in a field of swaying grass. Now that there were wires, all the connections had to be made. The operator had to be dialed after the dropping of the coin into the slot. The grass had grown higher, almost making the booth invisible. It was only the wires leading to and from that led her there now. The operator had to be dialed because Geraldine was calling person to person. She wanted his name announced and did not want to speak to his wife, though she might have to endure Margaret's voice saying hello if she were the first to lift the receiver off the hook. Although the phone at her end was so barrenly placed, the phone at his end was situated in the midst of what she took to be familial and an old-fashioned farmhouse setting. It was a good thing she called person to person. Margaret did answer, and they both had to endure his, who is it, and the operator saying it was her, and the wife handing the phone over to his hand, and his placing it to his ear. Hello. Hello. What do you want? I heard, how are you? What did you hear? I heard, 
Well, you sound okay. Are you coming to visit? No. She almost shouted alone in the field as the booth was two miles from any form of human habitation. And a brown rabbit leaped across, and a raccoon, and a slither, and an octopus. She screamed, I'm not coming. I won't come. I don't want to be there. Calmly, he said, so why'd you call? They told me, I thought, what? What did they tell you? What did you think? I won't say. I don't want to say. She screamed. She hung up. She ran away. The bull stood in a field of swaying grass. All the connections had to be made. She would do direct dialing. No, she would dial for the operator, reverse the charges. That way, she would know if he really wanted to receive the call. His wife answered, yes, we'll accept the charges. She wearily said and called loudly, Aaron. Aaron said hello. Don't die, Geraldine said. I can't help it, said Aaron. I don't want you to die, Geraldine said. Who has the choice, Aaron said. You have, you know you have, never said Aaron. You have, I know you have, besides Besides, Aaron's voice trailed off. I do want to see you. Of course, he said, so come. Not there. She was dizzy. She cried out, in the city. Never, he said. I will see you in the city. It's here. You love the city, she said or nowhere. You always go to the city, not in the city. In the autumn, I mean. Not this autumn. This autumn, she insisted, like every autumn. This autumn is different, he said. How different? I won't be there in the city. It buzzed. In the field and in the air and inside, inside it buzzed. Will you be there? She questioned softly. Not here either. Where then? Here. Now. Come here now to me here. I don't like it there. Why? Why don't you like it? There was a silence then on the long wire from the field with the swaying high grass to the farmhouse in the middle of a clearing high in the mountains 
where there were daisies and maiden lace and a multitude of mountain flowers. Why don't you like it? He finally yelled, and the sound in the field interfered with the clicking of Cricket's legs. Well, because of Margaret. Why should I have to run into her? Margaret? Why should she bother you? We're not going to. His yells upset the birds who had alighted on the phone booth and along the wires and among the poles. The hummingbirds were all skimming from one wire to the other, and the blue jays were setting up their uproar to match his. Look, where are you? Where are you calling from anyway? You go so many places I can't keep up with you in the summertime and in the spring and winters. You can be in Hawaii or Puerto Rico, for all I know, everywhere. You are always going everywhere. Where are you now? Where are you? You take a plane here to me now. Tell me where you are. I will wire you the money. I want you to come the best, the fastest, the most expensive and comfortable way. You come here. You come. Tell me where you are. Tell me. I will wire you the money for your fare, for your food. I don't care. You come. I'm dying. I'll die. You can save me. You come. You come. Geraldine went to the booth in the field of swaying grass. She did direct dialing. Aaron, who must have been close to the phone, answered. Hello? Geraldine? Yes, I will take the ferry and the bus to Boston and from Boston the bus to Will Margaret meet me? Margaret will meet you. I have to hitchhike to the ferry slip. Where are you? A wire. I'll pay my own way. Geraldine dialed from the booth in the field of swaying grass. The stalks were higher than the booth. Almost. I'm waiting for you. Margaret will meet you. I have to hitchhike to the ferry slip. Where are you? I'll wire. I'll pay my own way. Geraldine dialed from the booth in the field of swaying grass. The stalks were higher than the booth, and it was like walking through the jungle to get there. Exotic. 
There were striped tigers in that field and even a sleeping striped-robed gypsy, dark-skinned asleep. A, a striped tiger with green staring eyes, a lion, a black panther, cobra, rattlesnakes. She dialed, he answered. Yes, he was tired. This field I'm in. Outside his window, Aaron's field of waving grass, and outside of his window stood Aaron's field of waving grass, and further along were the rows of corn, carrots, asparagus, and thyme. He laid out each year in the fall and early spring. Insisted, from the earpiece of the phone, let me describe it. Margaret sat vigil by the bed. Yes, he said, there's nothing here. Geraldine's voice was weak over the wire. Margaret rocked on the porch at dusk. It's barren. Geraldine's voice droned on. There aren't even poles, no wires. The creaking of Margaret's rockers reached Geraldine's ears. It goes on and on, he prompted. Flat, yes, very flat, and wasted, peaceful even. Why are you there? Why are you doing that? Why are you there? Why are you doing this? Geraldine phoned Aaron. Almost at once they said hello and how are you to each other. And when will I see you and when will you come? She sat out immediately on the journey from her place to his place. And when she got there, the door was opened wide. Aaron's right hand spread from weakly resting wrist on the white sheet, folded over the faded pink squared flannel summer blanket on his chest to feel for the phone on the painted crackled white table at the left side of his bed. Margaret came from through the other open door with a sparkling white apron over her spare blue form. She held a sheet she had been folded in her left hand. She held it high, trailing it behind as she came, as she stood. She placed two fingers of her right hand on the corresponding knuckles of Aaron's hand, held now weakly to lift the receiver. His back was partly turned to Geraldine. His head lifted as though his eyes were lifted to meet the eyes of his wife. He withdrew his hand and rested back on the pillow. He sighed. The phone rang in Aaron's farmhouse. Thank you all. I think what we're about to do now, quite unscheduled, is all take a stretch. Um, take a stretch, have a glass of wine, and if there's a 10-minute limit on the reading, there is 
so that we keep to our time, there's a five-minute five minute limit. If you just do the quickest little introduction of yourself, of what you've written and what you do, what you happen to do on a daily basis these days, it would be very nice. Thank you. Galway Cannell, who many of you know, of course, and know his work, lives in Vermont in New York City. He's been many things, a journalist in Iran, a field worker for the Congress of Racial Equality in Louisiana. He's taught at many universities in America for the past 15 years and at universities in France and Australia. His selected poems, published in, 18, in 1982, won the Pulitzer Prize and with Charles Wright's Country Music, the American Book Award. Mr. Cannell is the Samuel F. B. Morse Professor of Arts and Science at New York University where he teaches creative writing. And he's a grand reader. Uh, welcome, Galway Cannell. Well, I, <clears throat> I'm to read for uh, 10 minutes. And then, um, isn't that right? Yeah, and then introduce the others who will read during the hour. Um, can you hear me okay? So I'll start with a poem called The Road Between Here and There. And you can imagine the speaker of this poem driving along a road and remembering what has befallen him at this spot or that spot. Here I heard the terrible, chaste snorting of hogs trying to re-enter the under-earth. Here I came into the curve too fast on ice, and being new to these winters, touched the brake pedal and sailed into the pasture. Here I stopped the car and snoozed while two small children crawled all over me. Here I reread Moby Dick, skimming big chunks even though to me it is the greatest of all novels in a single day while Fergus fished. Here I abandoned the car because of a clonk in the motor and hitchhiked, which in those days in Vermont meant walking the whole way with a limp, all the way to a garage where I passed the afternoon with ex-loggers who had stopped by to oil the joints of their artificial limbs and talk. Here a barn burned down to the snow. Friction, one of the ex-loggers said. Friction? Yep, the mortgage rubbing against the insurance policy. <laughs> Here I went 80 but was in no danger of arrest for I was blessed speeding, trying to get home in time to see my children before they slept. Here I bought speckled brown eggs with bits of straw shitted to them. Here I brought home in the back seat two piglets who rummaged around inside the burlap sack like pregnancy itself. Here I heard on the car radio Handel's concerto for harp and lute for the second time in my life, which Ines played to me the first time, making me want to drive after it and hear it forever. Here I hurt with mortal thoughts and almost recovered. Here I sat on a boulder by the winter steaming river and put my head in my hands and considered time, 
which is next to nothing, merely what vanishes, and yet can make will be like looking up and seeing the parachute dissolving in a shower of gold. Here's the chimney standing up by itself and falling down, which tells you you approach the end of the road between here and there. Here I arrive there. Here I must turn around and go back. And on the way back, look carefully to left and to right, for here, the moment all the spaces along the road between here and there, which the young know are infinite and all others know are not, get used up, that's it. This little poem is called, uh, <clears throat> well, you could, you could save up those little smatterings and put them together at the end. This little poem is called, uh, Prayer. Whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. I'll say it once more because it's, <coughs> it's shorter than most of my poems. Whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want, only that, but that. And this is a little poem whose protagonist is my son, Fergus, who's now taller than I am, and was then, but was then, um, it seems, but a few months ago, um, just um, about that, that big, uh, going through one of his Oedipal phases. It's called, After Making Love We Hear Footsteps. <laughs> and it goes like this. For I can snore like a bullhorn, or play loud music, or sit up talking with any reasonably sober Irishman, and Fergus will only sink deeper into his dreamless sleep that goes by all in one flash. But let there be that heavy breathing or a stifled come cry anywhere in the house and he will wrench himself awake and make for it on the run. As now we lie together after making love, quiet, touching down the length of our bodies, familiar touch of the long married. And he appears in his baseball pajamas, it happens, the neck opening so small he has to screw them on which one day may make him wonder about the mental capacity of baseball players <laughs> and flops down between us and hugs us and snuggles himself to sleep, his face gleaming with satisfaction at being this very child. In the half-darkness, half we look at each other and smile and touch arms across this little startlingly muscled body this one whom habit of memory propels to the ground of his making. Sleeper, only the mortal sounds can sing awake. This blessing love gives again 
into our arms. This poem is a kind of elegy, I suppose. Um, and it, um, in memory of Richard Hugo, it's called On the Oregon Coast. 607 rows of waves struggle landward. The wave batters a pewtery sheen on the water between them. As each wave makes its way in, most of it gets blown back out to sea, subverting even necessity. The bass rumble of sea stones, audible when the waves flee all broken back out to sea, itself blows out to sea. Now a log maybe 30 feet long and six across gets up and trundles down the beach. Like a dog fetching a stick, it flops unhesitatingly into the water. An enormous wave at once sends it wallowing back up the beach again. It lies among other driftwood, almost panting. Sure enough, after a few minutes, it gets up, trundles down the beach, throws itself into the water again. The last time I was on this coast, Richard Hugo and I had dinner in a restaurant just north of here, overlooking the sea. The conversation came around to personification. We agreed that 18th and 19th century poets almost had to personify. It was like mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, the only way they could imagine to keep the world from turning into dead matter. And that as post-Darwinians, it was up to us to anthropomorphize the world less and animalize, vegetabilize, and mineralize ourselves more. We doubted that pre-Darwinian language would let us. Our talk turned to James Wright, how his kinship with salamanders, spiders, and mosquitoes allowed him to drift back down through the evolutionary stages. When a group of people gets up from a table, the table doesn't know which way any of them will go. James Wright went back to the end. So did Richard Hugo. The waves coming in burst up through their crests and fly very brilliant back out to sea. The log gets up yet again, goes rolling and bouncing down the beach, plunges as though for good into the water. And I would like to read a, a poem that I would call a new poem, except uh, that would be premature, since uh, <laughs> it's uh, some, some uh, little, little while, I trust, away from being a finished poem at all. And um, just a, a word about, about uh, Les Petites Sœurs de Jésus is a kind of little, a group of nuns who, who um, live in non-Christian parts of the world and do good works. <coughs> in a Room Over the Sea is the title. The, uh, oh, and I have to say too that um, when I was, this, uh, at, uh, uh, I wrote this while in a room looking over the Mediterranean and playing on the whatever it was, the record player or whatever, um, a piece of Mozart played by 
uh, as Sonata, played by um, um, Arthur Grumio and Clara Haskell. The room fills with the violin's voice and the sharp, bright ringing of the piano. And the two touch and hold each other as though instruments could fall in love or sounds so opposed come from one creature, such as from Goethe's hand, which tapped his meters on the woman in his arms while caressing her, or the bellwether, the bellwether who goes through gorse both bleating and tinkling. Lighted by lightning bolts, one and then one, the sea lies out below, stroked white all over with separatings, seekings, passings into, basic to any sonata of piano and violin, or to the sonata da camera of lovers. As by this sea, in a long past summer, two seek, pass into, moan together, make quick cries in first love. Does one first love only at first, or over and over until at last one falls into violent infatuation, or else hangs on, burns low, exudes sadness, lasts out post-love with skin around the eyes, blackened? In another flash, on a Greek ship, leaving Port Said, two, one a petite sœur de Jésus, sit together among ropes on deck and talk until the constellations' bodies go back to their world and the stars fade and die, and upon them both tingles the corpuscent, love divine. Old now, Perhaps by this sea, the little sister may be whispering prayers into this very storm under God's own arpeggios raining down on the roof of her attic. Everyone who has shined comes back to the place. Whether one lives far off, and even if, when the moment rubs and clicks in and out of consciousness, Brightening and, and brightening and blighting the ceiling light, one has no one to tell it to, or whether one turns from a window over the sea to see one's dear friend in the same room and be struck across the heart by the sudden, fragile, ten-fingered plink of Haskell's piano as she turns and replies, in the voice requited of Grumio's violin. <clears throat> yes, now I'm going to introduce our, uh, my next uh, reader. Thank you. Uh, Peter Kane Dufault. Ah, here you are. Obviously, some explanations are necessary. 
my name is Peter Kane Defoe. It's spelled D-U-F-A-U-L-T as in default, but it's a French name, French-Canadian. And uh, you may wonder what a Frenchman is doing up here in the Highland Kilt, or what anybody's doing up here in the Highland Kilt for that matter, and I'll explain. I've been in the city uh, raising money uh, for Greenpeace by uh, blowing the bagpipes at fairs and festivals and uh, street corners and any place else uh, that would put up with me. And today I happen to be in the village, and uh, I thought I would avail myself of this opportunity kind of extended by PEN. And my trousers are up at 115th Street, so I didn't have too much choice. <laughs> now, uh, that being the case, uh, I think I might oppositely begin with a poem that uh, uh, relates to the cetaceans, that is, the whales and the dolphins, uh, called Mind in the Waters, which is a title I stole from the book of that name. And one of the editors of that book is uh, uh, Joan McIntyre. And she had a quote in there that struck me very much. Uh, the quote was, uh, alluding to the uh, minds of uh, whales and dolphins, she says, this is the mind I have always believed existed somewhere. That's the epigraph. The mystery of it is, we do recognize it from somewhere from the womb, perhaps, where we too floated frictionless, weightless, wantless, without locus, or we once really believed in the Beatitudes, once, like the whales, might have looked with pity on our trackers and torturers, succored them, wished them well, or we loved something once and should have died for it. But the whales are heathen. They are gods themselves. And still, even the last of them half seem to cooperate in their own Gotterdammerung. So it must be that that mind, though the whole ocean is in it, and the spine of the planet rocks to its bells and kettle drums, that mind simply cannot conceive of ours. You wonder what can, what did conceive ours, that only goes on and on with the butchery and the bleaching of bones, while for all we know, it is grieving for us we hear in our hydrophones. Um, the next poem is a, a poem called, uh, by the way, am I audible? I can't really tell whether I'm using it, okay. Uh, is a one called, uh, at a statue of Hamilton, that's Alexander, Alexander Hamilton, the uh, first secretary of the treasury under George Washington, your friend of mine. I got nothing against him personally, whatever the animus there may seem to be in this poem, I've always admired him, but uh, this, it didn't seem to come out very much that way in the poem. <clears throat> Knowing more than they knew, knowing everything really, or more than we want to know. We dismiss them now in their waistcoats, their hose, and their grandiloquence. If we see them at all in our minds, it's a kind of a stage play, a period, a costume and period piece. They strike attitudes, 
gaze afar into the future, but they don't see us there, wouldn't know us if they did. And still, who wouldn't strike attitudes when every right foot advanced, broached the new millennium, and who would not look afar when all the history there was he had written that morning, a little corruption is a necessary engine of government. Oh, Mr. Hamilton, can't you see? Afar, of course, through the bronze and the bird's dung, a trail of tears, a slaughter in the wilderness, a gilded age, an empire, a poisoning of the earth, an apocalypse, you aloft there with a the one foot advanced, the gaze infinite leading the way. <coughs> well, the next poem is uh, pretty much on the same subject, but a little less somber, I like to think. Uh, it's called Not Speaking of It. We don't speak of it, but we know you as well as I, if, if we stop to think of it. But why stop to think of it? So we know what is that, the dry wood from decades ago. The tree grows around it. If there's a flaw, the topsoil blown off, the tree too tall, even so, that slows nothing down. It grows because it has to. I can tell by the look in your eye, knowing was never enough. It's wondering we live by. Now I'd like to shoot in one here on uh, which I suppose probably falls into the category of light verse, <coughs> but uh, Seems to me I suffered just as much in its uh, parturition as I did in any other kind of thing I ever wrote, so uh, I'll let you be the judge of that. It's uh, called Poetry with the Quotes. I admit I keep trying to make it, but I'm not sure what it is. Would it be right there in the words or would the words, whether heard or seen, be more like a steeple, while it, remote and anterior, was sky, something like that? And would words then be disjoint and steeples be flat? I mean, or I think I mean, would there be any point with nothing to point at? Uh, I think I'll write a poem, uh, I'll say a poem called uh, Piper, which uh, has nothing to do with my being a piper. I wrote this poem quite a long time ago. In fact, about the same time I was taking up the pipe myself, so the noises it refers to were certainly not the ones I was making at that time. And probably, uh, I haven't made any much better since, but I'm working on it. Uh, poem is called Piper. There goes the Piper, call him Pan, fingering a cylinder of wind. He makes the sounds he only can. 
till all the beasts after their kind, and notably the wolf and bear, lion and lynx and fisher cat, dance with their forefeet in the air, burning and burning moonstone eyes half shut. Dance slowly round him in a ring with comic tails and heads a nod. Poor brutes, they even try to sing. Oh, exquisite fingers on the wood, take care, don't loosen, lest they hear upon the breath within the true, the scrannel undercry of fear, for they'll turn then and murder you. One last shot here called uh, Fisherman. I've been fishing now for nine hours, and in that time departed all cortical things, having sunk gradually below light to strata of slime, weed, bass, and shoaled fingerlings. Plover-like peering offshore where nothing is certain save the infrequent rational gleam of the lure like a drowned flare on its long retrieve signaling into the unseen. For hours, for half a day, nothing may answer. Then double, double tug some cold killer of fry fathoms away, reasserts a Silurian mindless violence. Hauled in, he will thrash, expressionless. Body one clenched limb, four sword cuts in the deep. Sunfish, maybe, with daggered crest like Neptune's helmet, gold gorget and turquoise menton, or pickerel, the miniature barracuda whose fine scale is like mica or gold leaf. Sometimes I feel like a doctor of dreams, like Jung or a Sibyl, identifying as they come frantic into daylight, this or that gaudy and innocent archaism. But each pulls the angler lakeward also, as it sounds against the bent spin rod and dragged reel. I would not dare go down into that inverted world where symbols devour other symbols in darkness. No, it was only this morning I awoke from there. God knows upon what impulse. Thank you very much. Next reader is Penny Harter. About myself, I write poetry and fiction. I have a number of books of poems, mostly with small presses, uh, one with fiction in it, two. I, can you hear me? Is that better? I think I have to get a little higher. I helped write the Haiku Handbook with McGraw-Hill, which was published last year with Bill Higginson, who will follow me. And every day I teach in a high school, which will be evident in one of the poems, at least. 
I'm going to read eight short poems. A Miracle. One is around somewhere, perhaps in the little white box, empty of all save the tiny, soiled rectangle of cotton. A miracle will appear, perfect as a polished grain of mustard seed. There is always a miracle when you need one. The scratch on your cheek heals. The two-day-old milk does not turn and foul the carton with its sour smell. This morning, for instance, you woke up. And then this one, which turned out a little bit apocalyptic, I think. Orgasm. <laughs> That's timing. <laughs> Orgasm. All the mouths in my body laugh, spinning my bones until they rise to dance with one another like old women stomping resilient dirt, cackling, lifting their skirts. Old women grin under my skin howling as I lift my arm to brush back my hair and my right breast rises, shrieking with delight as I trace the circle of my nipple through thin cloth, falling over themselves as I celebrate my flesh. Is this the way the earth feels, knowing men looked upon her from the moon, tracing her swellings, her wet places and dry, her dark hollows and peaks of light with the precision of cartographers? An old woman cackles across the void as earth jiggles her multiple breasts and opens her caverns, wanting to be naked everywhere, all at once, virginal again. So we will love her blemished body better than before. And all the mouths inside me laugh with her, laugh as they watch me brush back my hair from a skull, tickle my ribs with a finger bone, and bare my teeth in a permanent grin. Black Deer. Black Deer standing on the broken macadam of the old road through the woods, having stepped from among the tall pines into their long shadows. You are a dark brother to one who called me once, suddenly tilting my head to the ridge where she stood waiting. You stand in the red streaked sky, offering black spine to the night. What would you teach me this winter twilight? I would turn back, stop the car, walk quietly up to your still flesh and hold you in my arms. Perhaps you come from him, the tall, fair keeper of the grove of ancient trees on the hill. He wore a black robe too, smeared his face and limbs with fat and ashes. Wandering through my dream one night, stopping now and then to hear the birds, he leaned on a gnarled staff and looked out across the plains the sky in his eyes. Black deer, I did not climb the hill to embrace him, though we loved one another, as I have not stroked you or your pale sister, though you call me, though we belong to the same family. Black deer, in my new dream, I follow you, find among the ancient trees the nest of old leaves we call home. Um, written Friday hmm. and true 16 years beyond the breast 
punk hairdo jutting tall, hoop earring in his left ear, right thumb thrust deep into his mouth, the high school senior studies the play. I watch the thumb slip in, pull out, popping from the seal of his lips, slide in again as his index finger curves around his nose. I study his distant gaze as he nurses 16 years beyond the breast, shift to his bare ankles, fatigue pants and flannel shirt, and I stare at his right thumb, out for a while, pale and shriveled like old fruit. Teaching in a high school is interesting. <laughs> Grandmother's milk. On my son's 22nd birthday, we recall his birth, how he nursed for 20 minutes and my engorged breasts. My father tilts back in his chair between spoonfuls of ice cream and cake. He speaks of his mother whose breasts hardened with unused milk when his baby sister couldn't take enough. She asked each son to suck out the pain. I can see it plain as day, my father says, closing his eyes. I was 10 years old. We were on the back porch. My younger brother wouldn't do it, so I did. I sucked out that milk. Spit it in the dirt, my mother said. Next day, she went into town and got a hand pump so she didn't need me. Tonight, driving by a graveyard, my headlights sweeping tombstones, I think again of that 10-year-old and mouthfuls of unswallowed milk settling into the dust. Another one differently about my father. Mattress fire. When I was a child, my father lit a cigarette in the night and fell back asleep, his arm dangling over the edge, his curled fingers holding fire. My parents dragged his mattress to the bathtub. Later, they pinned an old blanket tight around its sagging middle where some stuffing had dissolved to soggy lumps. For years, I watched my mother change the sheets on that burnt mattress, smoothing them over the old blanket the charred hole in the stripe ticking. My mother changed the sheets on that mattress even when cancer from three packs a day began to burn my father's jawbone, dissolve his soft palate. Even after surgery, when he nestled into his new life, his body finding the familiar hollows. The mattress finally collapsed into itself 20 years after he stopped smoking. Somewhere, my father's mattress still burns, smoldering in the dumps off the turnpike like those underground fires they can't put out for years. Someone read earlier about nursing homes. This is about my husband's grandmother when she was in her late 90s. The learned response. As the nurse shifts Nana in her coma, twisting her hospital gown up to expose hidden thighs and gray hair at the crotch, the old woman's hand jerks up to grab the gown and pull it down, a deliberate twitch from whatever dream she's caught in. 
I sit by her bed, stunned at her thighs, slender as a girl's, their pale skin shining under the light, and that tuft of gray hair holding on. And the last one, Sister Death. My death grazes just out of sight over my right shoulder. I hear the whisper of green between her lips. I imagine her as mare, heavy with foal, tail swishing flies from her strong back, eyes brown as a farm pond. Each day, I toss a lump of sugar back into that unseen pasture, murmur soothing words under my breath. Wherever I go, she migrates with me, even in winter when fodder is scarce. I feel her warm breath on my neck and dream of bundled hay in a heated stall. One day in some field neither of us has visited, I will forget to toss the sugar or to dream of hay, and my death, and my death will canter closer, whinnying softly until her nose finds my palm. Thank you. Higginson will read. Penny and I are always playing games as to who's going to follow who. Briefly, I, um, it just occurred to me it's a very Dionysian thing to be doing. I work for the Department of Parks and Recreation in Union County, New Jersey. I administer the Office of Cultural and Heritage Affairs. I'm going to read one long poem in several parts. It's taken me about 10 years to get to this version of it, called The Healing. One, prologue. Salt rush through nostrils the first day's deep pink mucus. Salt taste ruddy running from gums through teeth, morning and second day fever. Sores in mouth and urethra burning as all third day flow of wet bowels shows red. And I dream through oatmeal and sage tea of the jaundiced mother I left on her well-loved pillows while that final cancer turned all her mucous membranes into one insistent sore of escape, a culmination of sinus attacks against tears and asthmatic wheezings replacing rage. Have all our Puritan stoicisms come to this, that we be sick? Two, the betrayals. Mother, mummy, as you had me call you, wrapped in the death of your mother's smothering love, stranded more tightly in the adoration of the husband and son you both loved and betrayed. Did you know, do you know, in that locale beyond dreams you've gone to, how I cried and cried three days in East Side Patterson furnished room bed, determined to hear my own grief for my father, your husband of the heart, who lost his own father when he was 14, 
as I, when he died, was 14 and demanding the kind attentions all young boys dream of in fathers cutting their ways alone across seas broader than Odyssean chants, each cut adrift in our father's cancerous intestines. Mother, know these angry words in your silent grave in Connecticut, where you have joined your father who beat you with the handle of an axe, where you will soon be joined by your mother who drowned your love of springtime colors in oceans of blue clothes, now 90 and hateful to herself and uncomprehending of how you went before her or why you wished to lie in the small family plot by your father and mother, though she still remembers those words you repeated often as a child, Papa and Mama and Baby makes a family. Mother, know the rage of a young son put out of the way in a boarding school during a war, a rage held all these 30-plus years now shouted with the news of your long-dead affair, you betrayed us, you betrayed us, you betrayed us. Unfaithful to your mother, pregnant before marriage, the least she could have done was stay a virgin for me. Unfaithful to your husband, an affair in wartime. This is going to be about the first time you ever had a chance to really prove to people that I love you, so I'm going to say it right here on the record. Unfaithful to your son, boarding school over babysitter. Mother, why did you put me in that goddamn sterile prison a year and a half of pain piled on pain sufficient to block all recollection, save a few jarring pathetic images remembered in approaching middle age. No one left alive to tell me what I was really like or awaken the secret smiles of a six-year-old pushing a vague toy truck over sand and rocks. Three, the boarding school, 1944 to 46. The river. Late afternoon sun over washed out green of late summer high grass, harsh creak of a red winged blackbird and a yellow butterfly coasting down the east bank, sloping to the river. Here a black eyed Susan, there one. The butterfly turns tail to breeze, bobs away uphill. Grass strokes my shins as I strip off the seeds with my thumbnail. A glint of water through the trees the river's breadth stretching out over them towards some shore and my father beyond. The Lesson A sleigh desk of cast iron holding worn wood, scratched with name, some deep as years here, some cut in yesterday's spilled ink. Cool iron, cool wood, breeze over misty river beyond new-leafed maple trees and the crack of a ruler across knuckles. A fellow. He was cheerier and blonder than I, and we stood, I in front, on the big concrete block the flagpole rose from at the end of the field of dust and gravel. He pushed hard, and I, with no time for balance, for form, landed in a heap, my forearm skinned from wrist to elbow, my knee with a triangular patch of red and black oozing. I left him laughing and walked silently the hundred steps to the infirmary and never cried until the nurse poured on the iodine. There I'd later have my tonsils out and eat bowl after bowl of ice cream to forget a night gagging on blood. <laughs> 
night games. The youngest in that house of little play, we six and seven-year-olds roomed together and rose up on the ends of our beds at night to rope one another with a length of clothesline. The lasso had just settled around me one time when the house mother's step neared in the hall. Excited, he jerked it and pulled me off the bed to the floor with a thump. When she came in, we all lay peacefully in our beds, a faint stain on the pillow under the rising welt on my neck. Another time, she found me sleeping with wrists manacled in toy handcuffs. She took them away, and I cried for days. Day games. On the ground floor, there was a sort of day room with sturdy tables of dark wood and not much else that I remember except the many balsa and tissue models of fighter planes built by the older boys and hung as if flying just below the ceiling in fantasies of warlike altitudes. In later years, I never built a model like that, but I always remembered the deep satisfaction of catching a few flies, tearing off their wings, and watching them walk up and down the legs under those dark wood tables. In that same room, I drew a self-portrait praised by everyone as a perfect likeness. In later years, I could never equal it, and I don't know where it went. Four, the guilt. Mother, did you know my pain? How could you? You never admitted your own. As I jumped high from the flying swing only to land in the pale playground dust, so you rushed from a lover's city to find my eyelashes clipped, their former stickiness already forgotten on that distressing visitor's day. How could I know then your rage cried out your own hurt pride and shame? Five years later, when my father chipped your tender ankle with the grub axe, digging your suburban garden bed, did, you ra did your rage at his supposed intent and the deep brown scar hole simply hide your fear he knew, or worse, your own refusal to understand how love's sweet blaze left ashes in your life? The sinus in your early 20s, you said, was New York soot. The asthma in your early 30s, you blamed on Jersey's sulfurous night fogs. The breast cancer as you turned 40, you named grief at the loss of my father. And that cancer deep in the intestines of your early 50s, what made my father's own killing disease rot away your soft core, leaving only leathery toughness? Five, the atonements. As I now celebrate a grief I never knew was in me, 10 years after your death, let me name for you here on the clean white page of a son's devotion the gifts of your atonement laid upon the jealous altar of love not loved enough. Your sinus attacks on autumn mornings, atonement for a love you never allowed yourself, your mother, the only bulwark against a father insane with shiftlessness in Puritan Connecticut after lust for California gold, never finding any. Your asthma attacks on spring evenings, atonement for a love you took illicitly and hated yourself for almost forever, or at least until you died, atonement for the anger of a young wife 
left behind when your husband volunteered to go off to war. Your cancer of the breast in summer noontime, atonement for the love you couldn't bring yourself to give my father, being unclean, having loved the body of another in that weary absence. Your cancer of the intestines, bladder, pancreas, and liver in deep winter night, a grand final blaze of atonement for all the wrongs you ever did me, your son, shut away in the boarding school in my father's wartime absence, and moved to an attic bedroom at the advent of your final bitter marriage to a man needing the love you promised him, but had forgotten how to give even yourself. Six, your life. Your life gave me life. Your atonement heals me. This bitter, honeyed infusion of sage knows my tears. At last comes love, full measure of grief. Let through, let go. reader, I hope I'm not going to mispronounce uh, her name, is Jean Dietra? Detra, sorry. I find myself with the poets, but I'm going to read from a manuscript of a novel just finished. The title is Readings by Phoebe. And it takes place on an archeological excavation. Dr. Wurtenbeck sent one of the men to the truck to bring a bench so we might have something to sit on. He came carrying above his head one of the benches from the rear of the truck, a long slat nailed to two uprights. There, that's better. Sit down, Phoebe. We have a long morning ahead of us. Installed some 20 feet away from the men, we both sat, Dr. Wurtenbeck making notes on his clipboard while I dropped my canvas bag on the seat. My eyes rested on the men, watching how they put their feet on the shoulder of the spade, leaned in on it, lifted a shovel full of dirt, and heaved it back behind them. I felt as I turned away from Dr. Wurtenbeck a hollowness press under my ribs. So much was riding on what might be pure guesswork. Where does your knowledge come from, Phoebe? Dr. Wurtenbeck asked, turning sideways on the bench to make sure not to miss the expression on my face. I really don't know. Oh, yes, you do. You play coy. You know perfectly well. Someone who would pull up stakes the way you did, burn your bridges, and come stay. Look, we have hours and hours to kill. No dictation, nothing at all to do. Talk to me. Tell me things. I'm all ears. All heart, too. You should know that by now. Why, any other man in my position would have picked you off with 
lived here before, I said, pulling out each word. Everything of a certain period seems familiar, from about the middle of the first century or a little before, when Paul came and stayed. I remember him. I know just what he looked like. I can see him. Dr. Wurtenbeck made a face. Give me time, Phoebe. I'm only an old college professor set in his ways. Anyway, I said, you don't believe in reincarnation. And if you don't, you can't believe that I lived here before in Ephesus. Around my shoulders, I felt Dr. Wurtenbeck's arm comforting me. I'm sorry, he said softly. The only way to make you speak about it is to get you mad. You have got me mad, I said. You really have. I'm a bully. Hit me. I gave a begrudging laugh. Go on, he said, removing his arm and pointing to his belly. Right here. That time in childhood when my sled hit the flagpole, zigzagged down the rest of the hill as I lay like an angel in the snow under a spinning sky, seeing stars. That head-on collision opened to memory my past life here in Ephesus. What I believe from this odd fate of mine is this. All one lifetime in the end is boxed and thrown into storage and lies there till some violence in my case, hitting hard against the flagpole, breaks the integument between one box and another, its sides flying apart, making a mess everywhere. People might believe we are given one solitary lifetime each, but that's simply not true. We all live many times, having a chance each time to perfect ourselves. There have been moments in the world when this mild statement of belief would be easily acceptable, less so now. We live in a mental construction of a world of our imagination in which we see only the outline of material things. And since most people agree on this, it has become established reality. Yet it is as false as the shadows on the cave walls. We did find something on the fourth day, towards three in the afternoon, when there were only one pair of men in the trench and another pair above to hoist up the buckets. I heard a cry. Chilled at the thought of a cave-in, I jumped immediately to my feet. Dropping their rope buckets, the men on the ground were leaning over the edge of the trench to see whatever they could see. Down below, the foreman had pulled his knife from inside his boot and was feeling with its point the outline in the earth of a solid piece of stone, which his shoulders partly hid from view as he flicked away dirt with his knife. I asked one of the men whether it was a dress block or simply a boulder in the way. So wrapped was he that he didn't answer. A little whisk broom had materialized in the foreman's hands, and I could see by stepping to one side how deftly and lightly he handled it as he brushed dirt from the stone that I could already see was a lemony color. The whisk broom cleared the straight edge and along the top of the block, 
revealing all of a sudden carving that seemed to be a circular wreath. The unexpectedness of seeing this bit of decoration made me start so violently, I nearly lurched over the side. It was like peering down a well, startled by the sight of one's own face. I leapt to my feet, and in the sort of voice in which one cries fire, ordered one of the men to go in the pickup to bring back Dr. Wurtenbeck. I watched the workman cross the blackened field in no special hurry and drive off, making a rise of dust. What do you think it is, I shouted down. The younger man laid his head back and smiled up, nodding, meaning, I suppose, that he thought we'd come upon something considerable. The latter, I noticed, resting against the narrow side of the trench, was at its greatest extension, which would make the depth of the trench some 12 feet. Both men, as they waited, squatted on their haunches and smoked, while I rose and dusted myself, picking off bits of stubble. When the truck returned, it did not come to a halt at its usual place, but made a sharp turn and bore down on us. Dr. Wurtenbeck, in the passenger seat, opened the door by its outside handle and jumped down. Well, Phoebe, he said somewhat mechanically, brushing me by. He saluted the men below and descended by the ladder while I positioned myself to be able to see from above. The tiny wreath that had been whisked clean he touched lightly. All I could see from my vantage point was the top of his head and the delicate manipulation of his hands. He looked up and met my eyes, shouting, get the clipboard on the front seat. I was holding it when he, puffing from exertion, mounted the ladder and grabbed it from my hands. With the pencil that swung from a chain, he wrote something and handed it back. I could read, Theos Ephistos. Then this adamant, impatient, overworked and irascible man lifted both fists into the air in triumph, thrust back his head and cried to the sky, God most high. It was, I found out later, what was incised on the stone. Samuel Menashe will read. Ah. Uh, since this is the Paschal season, I thought I would uh, read a few poems that pertain to this time of year or to this season. Paschal applies equally to Passover and Easter. Reeds rise from water, rippling under my eyes. Bulrushes tuft the shore. At every instant I expect what is hidden everywhere. 
There's a passage in uh, the so-called Old Testament of the Bible, uh, which uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, which goes like this. And he, that is, uh, uh, it's with a capital H, he, and he afflicted thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord does man live. You know, that manna is what was given to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Um, uh, the passage really ascribes our suffering to God if we were simple, uh, wholesome creatures as Adam before the fall. Simple, wholesome material uh, like good bread would be enough, but suffering gives us a soul and we need more than bread. Manna. Open your mouth to feed that flesh your teeth have bled. Tongue us out bone by bone. Do not allow man to be fed by bread alone. Then, of course, the rock was struck by Moses and water came from it. Stone would be water, but it cannot undo its own hardness. Rocks might run wild as torrents plunged upon sky by cliffs none climb. Who makes fountains spring from flint? Who dares tell one thirsting there's a well? Uh, we're told that the altar, an altar should be made with unhewn stone. Pa Pasco wilderness. Blue funnels the sun. Each unhewn stone, every derelict stem, engenders Jerusalem. And then when they reached, uh, uh, when uh, Moses was about to die, he was inside of the promised land and they took him out up to Mount Pisgah and he saw Canaan across the Jordan, but he uh, died before reaching it and all the generation that left Egypt died before entering the promised land, a new generation into the promised land. Promised land, at the edge of a world beyond my eyes beautiful, I know exile is always green with hope, the river we cannot cross flows forever. Uh, years after I wrote that poem, I saw another way of, uh, of presenting it. Excuse me. Promised land. At the edge, at the edge of a world, at the edge of a world beyond my eyes, at the edge of a world beyond my eyes, beautiful. At the edge of a world beyond my eyes, beautiful, I know exile. At the edge of a world beyond my eyes, beautiful, I know exile is always. At the edge of a world beyond my eyes, beautiful, I know exile is always green with hope. The river we cannot cross flows forever.
uh, there is a scene in the Bible where uh, David is bringing the, the very ark that was carried through the wilderness is brought into Jerusalem by David. Uh, the temple has not been built yet. It's a, and God, it's believed that God's presence in, inhabits the ark. And he's bringing it into Jerusalem. And, and he's described with the uh, sentence, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And they're being very literal since God's presence inhabited this ark, which they were carrying on their shoulders. He was dancing in front of the ark, and God was in, in the tabernacle or in the ark. The shrine whose shape I am has a fringe of fire. Flames skirt my skin. 